commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. Welcome to another edition of Banal of America. Here we are uh, continuing onward with the summer of strangeness. We've uh, we've kept it going here. Uh, so far, so good. I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty impressed. We haven't, uh, we haven't knocked off a week yet, so that's pretty good. Uh, and tonight, we, I, I guess there was sort of a, an interesting sort of uh, theme of this summer's offerings. Uh, I guess it would be that uh, I'm trying to bring in some new voices, people we haven't talked to yet on the program before, uh, or people we haven't talked to in a long, long time, like Vaney last week, or uh, or, or folks who were only on once, like Robert Schneck. Um, so uh, new people, different people who have been on, who have not been on, but all of America before, but uh, who are making an impact in the world of the paranormal in various realms. And so tonight, our guest is Chris Cogswell. He is the founder and host of the Mad Scientist Podcast, the wildly popular Mad Scientist Podcast. He has a Ph.D. in chemical engineering with a focus on nanomaterials for absorption and separations. Uh, so he's a genuine, real-life scientist uh, who has an interest in the strange and unusual. Uh, he's got a really popular podcast. Uh, he, he had a dalliance with MUFON, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, uh, as we get into the program. Uh, and uh, he's a frequent... Twitter. A lot of the folks who are having on the show uh, this summer are folks I've encountered on Twitter, uh, you know, crossing paths with them. So I've, been, I've enjoyed a lot of the content he puts out on Twitter, and uh, I think we share a lot of the same opinions. So I said to myself, hey, let's get, let's get this Chris Cogswell on the show. Let's talk to him a little bit about uh, what's going on in the world of the paranormal. So with all that said, welcome to the show, Chris Cogswell. Thanks for coming on with All of America. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to come on. Well, we, we start out generally with the new folks, with the bio, the background, you know, who is Chris Cogswell, how did you get interested in all this, and, uh, you know, how, tell us about your journey, if you will. Give us the background. Sure, yeah. So, um, you know, my family, I guess kind of it really starts with my family and my family background. So my, um, my mom and my dad both were immigrants. My mom is originally from Italy. And my dad is from the uh, strange and exotic country of Canada. Um, it's very weird. Uh, but they both, both my parents kind of had very non-traditional, um, I guess, backgrounds and, you know, grew up in families where uh, the strange and unusual was sort of not really commonplace, but I guess a little bit um, accepted or talked about a little bit more. 
And my mom, especially, you know, when I was growing up, my mom was really into things like astrology and, you know, uh, UFO stories and horror movies and all those kinds of cool things. And so that really kind of got me interested in it. Um, but at the same time, my family was also very, very settled and very strong in the idea that, you know, a good education, um, academic background, you know, all of those sorts of things were really important. You know, for my growing up, like for my family, you know, the the best job you could have was, you know, a doctor or a professor, right? Like that was right. the, those were like the de facto jobs you wanted to have um, or a teacher of some sort, you know, like yeah. those are the kinds of things. So education and knowledge was always really important. And so I always, as a kid growing up, you know, you get interested in these, in these topics and you hear more about them and stuff. And like any inquisitive kid, I think you want to know, is there truth to some of this, right? Like you just, you, you kind of instinctively want to know um, if any of this holds any water. And for me, that kind of developed into, I guess, a lifelong obsession with the question of, you know, frankly, why do people believe, um, why do people believe weird things sometimes? And do any of those weird things have reality behind them? So, you know, the, the kind of common example I give is my, my grandma growing up, she was super into, um, she was super into like science and history and medicine and was really knowledgeable about all these things. And it was always great talking to her about that stuff. But then when you got into certain topics, her mindset just like went off the rails, you know? So, (laughs) so an example of that is she got diabetes as an older woman. And some, I don't know where she picked this up, but for some reason she picked up a myth that if you put lemon juice on um, sweet things, it would negate the sugar and make it okay for you to eat if you're diabetic. So, like, you know, yeah, which wasn't true, right? And, like, thank God my grandma generally ate pretty healthy because there were times where she'd be getting, you know, like an ice cream sundae and then sprinkling lemon juice on it and being like, no, no, it's okay. Now the body doesn't realize it's sugar. You know, and you're sitting there like, you know, you're 15 years old. You're kind of a little punk kid. And you're like, you know, Grandma, that's so stupid. What are you doing? And she's like, you know, don't don't talk to me like that, Christopher, right? So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, so that's kind of, I guess, where the desire to know answers to that came from. And as a kid, um, my family had a lot of experiences that I guess people would – if if I had been raised in another household, I think people would have considered them to be paranormal. So an example, I can give you an example of this. My dad, yeah. um, my dad was very very sick when I was a kid, and the first sign of his sickness was he was he was having hallucinations at night from lack of oxygen. Ah. Right, he had, he developed sleep apnea, and so I'll never forget. This was like right after. Um, I, I was I just got into like really got into horror movies about aliens and everything else, and he um, he started talking about seeing uh, or speaking to an animal that was in the trees outside, right? And, oh wow! Um, and anyone who's listening to the show, you yourself know, that's like a really common part of the UFO lore now, right? Is they show up as or some versions of the UFO lore, I guess I should say, they show up as owls and they sit outside your window and, you know, all that kind of spooky stuff. Um, and so if, if I had been raised differently, I, I would have, I would probably still today consider that to have been a paranormal experience as opposed to just like, you know, my dad's brain being like, you know, please give me oxygen. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, 
So anyway, so those kinds of things were always fascinating to me, always a big thing. Um, when I got to school for an undergraduate degree, I did a, I did chemical engineering, which is kind of my first degree, but I also did philosophy, and a lot of my philosophy research focused on that same question, like why do people believe some things that are scientific and some things that are not scientific? Why do people deny science in some cases, um, but rather take on like conspiracy theories or um, you know, pseudoscientific beliefs or whatever, but also the related question of why does science ignore um, certain subjects, right? Like why does yeah, science yeah. ignore a whole class of people who claim that they've had um, UFO experiences, right? That, that to me is a really interesting question. Um, and so I graduated um, from undergrad. I went to go get my PhD in, at Northeastern in chemical engineering, um, focusing, like you said, on nanomaterial synthesis for different applications. And in grad school, I decided to start the podcast. And that kind of really kicked it off for me. You know, that was where I started getting, you know, talking to people who were involved in more of this subject, speaking to people who had experiences, who had seen things, who thought that something real had happened to them. Um, and really how I got involved, frankly, with MUFON was by talking to these experiencers and, and you know, I guess having them tell me their stories and be really affected by them and, and hear how, you know, really deeply moved and, and um, frankly, how damaged some of these experiences could, how much damage these experiences could do to them. Um, and thinking, you know, there's a whole class of people who their only recourse is to go to people who want to sell them, you know, healing crystals and junk like that. Right, right? Yeah. They're being exploited. So I, I felt that I should, if I could, um, at least help in some way or get an answer or even just kind of steer them towards evidence-based approaches, right? Like what, what will actually help their symptoms, even if it can't answer that underlying question of like, you know, what happened to you? At the very least, we can actually help these people in a, you know, in a good way, right? It's <laughs> like a medically good and ethical way. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, yeah, yeah. that's kind of where, I don't know, that's the long story. That's the origin <laughs> story. All involved right. in this. Yeah. Now, I, at, at the risk, I guess it's, I guess we'll just dive into the MUFON thing because that's kind of like, <laughs> it was just sort of an interesting turn of events because uh, I remember you came on board MUFON and it was kind of a big thing. Everyone was like really interested in what you were going to do, um, but it was a very short-lived uh, short-lived association. So I guess give us sort of the rundown on that, and uh, then, you know, then I'll kind of pepper you <laughs> with some, some questions. What what exactly happened there? I'm I'm kind of familiar with what did happen, but um, you know, tell tell the people what happened because uh, it's it's a little inside baseball, but it's also like th this show is a lot of inside baseball. So I think people will will appreciate it. Yeah, no, for sure, man. I mean, you know, that's. And that's one thing, too, with everything that I've tried to do in these fields is, um, you know, the it's one of the funny kind of, I guess, ironies of being involved in these sorts of things, right? On the one hand, you have people who believe in UFOs or believe in these things saying, you know, the government is hiding secrets from all of us and there's you know, terrible secret keepers and there's people who want to know. And then you ask them, like, well, where's your evidence? They're like, I can't tell you. It's a secret. You know, I'm a, I'm a secret yeah. keeper. I can't tell you that. Um, so for me, I try to be as open and transparent as possible, right? So, um, so my resignation letter from MUFON is online. All my reasons are online. We talk about it on the podcast. Um, but essentially what happened was, so I was um, 
I was doing the show and I was kind of, you know, I, I tend to look at these things skeptically and um, I think also just tend to, I, I hedge my, I guess not to really hedge my views, but my views sort of align with the idea that even if, even if some of this is real, right? Even if we accept that there is a reality to UFOs or any of these things, ghosts, the afterlife, whatever, it's probably true that 99% of those events are misreported or hoaxes or errors or whatever, right? They're, they're, they're yeah. probably rare. They're probably exceedingly rare. And so um, that view and that take on this has not made me a lot of friends in this field. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think it's, I think it's the most sensible viewpoint you can take, right? Like, you know, like Socrates said, the only thing that we can be sure of is that we don't know anything, right? The only, the only thing I know is I know nothing. Um, yeah. And that's, I think absolutely true for this field. So when I was with, I was doing the podcast, I was talking about this kind of stuff and I was talking to more and more experiencers. And a lot of people were saying, you know, why don't you get involved with MUFON? They are really hurting. They are looking for a new director of research and, you know, it, it just might be a good fit. And yeah. so I initially kind of, I basically decided like I should put my money where my mouth is, right? I'm on this show every week saying, Oh, it'd be so cool if scientists got involved in the UFO subject or whatever. And, you know, I'm a guy with a PhD who wasn't getting involved. I'll do it. Right. So, yeah. So I decided to, I decided to send an email and see if I could talk to somebody in the area. Um, I was in Minnesota at the time and see if I could talk to anybody at the local chapter. And surprisingly enough, I got a call back from the head of MUFON um, saying that he wanted to talk and, you know, was really excited to have me join and all this other stuff. So it was kind of, uh, I guess I was kind of lucky and I was really happy to have that sort of welcome. And in speaking to them and, um, and speaking to Jan Harzan and kind of getting to know the team and everyone else at MUFON, I felt like it, it felt like there was a genuine effort to revitalize what MUFON was doing and, and what it could do. You know, the, the way MUFON runs now, it's sort of very, uh, I argue it's it's like a franchise model, right? Um, right. Yeah, yeah. When you you know when you run a, fr a fast food franchise location, you get to kind of borrow like the name and the logo and everything else, but at the end of the day, they're not really doing anything for you, right? Like you're still you're right. buying all the stuff you sell from McDonald's. You know they're not sending you patties for free. Um, yeah, no, no, no. And that's yeah, kind exactly. of they're sending the promotional materials and, and shit every month or whatever. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And and that's the way MUFON works is you have a local chapter and the local chapter, they basically are self-funded, right? Like MUFON doesn't send them money. They don't send them materials on training to do investigations. They don't send them any of that stuff, right? Like any materials or, or tools or um, people or anything. Right. Yeah, actually, in a lot of cases, a lot of uh, in, in a lot of cases, the, it goes, the, the money goes the other way. So the people who were yes. training and well, stuff have to pay MUFON to be trained and stuff. So it's not even yes. – it's, it's almost, yes. dare I say, more like a pyramid scheme than a, than a, <laughs> than a restaurant franchise. But it's, uh, Listen, right. it's a very it is a, uh, it is <laughs> interesting <laughs> setup. Let's put it that way. It is an inverted cone method, okay, Tim? Let's, let's pyramid <laughs> is a hard word. It's a, it's an ancient <laughs> alien structure method. Um, there you structure, go. Structure, right? But no, uh, you know, it, but it's true though, right? Like at the end of the day, the things that the things that the investigators get for being 
members of MUFON is kind of the name and the uh, the electronic structure that exists behind the MUFON case database, right? They have a place right. to put their cases. They have a place to put their records. They have a, you know, in a, in a, a place to talk about this stuff. And in many ways, like, that's it's not dissimilar to the way that um, scientific journals work or um, conferences or things like that. So, anyways, um, so I thought we could do some really cool stuff with MUFON. I was really excited. And we were starting to do cool stuff. We were starting to analyze their case database, um, working with some statisticians to figure out a way to clean the data and make it anal- you know, make it capable of being analyzed in any in any interesting or kind of significant way. Um, yeah. you know, anyone can anyone can run numbers through Excel, but those aren't those aren't necessarily statistically valid because of the quality of the information in the data set, right? So it's you know um, that's a problem that has to be dealt with. Um, at the same time, we were working on other things, you know, trying to get more scientists involved, trying to get a team of folks together to figure out, you know, what is the profile of a good case? What's the profile of a bad case? Um, stuff like that. And yeah. unfortunately, I was kind of shocked to find out that um, – so one of – I'm going to go back a little bit. One of the kind of baseline things that I wanted to know before I joined was essentially has MUFON – because MUFON is a very shady um, – shady is maybe the wrong word. It has a very spotty record when it comes to vetting people, uh, the people who are in leadership, the – all the scandals, all the things your listeners know about, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I was pretty concerned lending my voice and kind of support in any way to an organization that I thought maybe I can't really, maybe I can't really stand behind them or maybe I don't feel comfortable. So I, I kind of filled around and tried to make sure like all that, you know, all that racism crap is done, right? All that, uh, yeah, exactly, all that yeah. sexism stuff is done. All the cult leader stuff is done. And was assured it was, and it looked like it was to my eye. Um, and then lo and behold, I find out that the kind of the root of the problem wasn't just an individual. It was it was more of a culture at certain um, – it seems like it's a culture at certain – again, MUFON is more of a franchise organization, right? So yeah. I, don't, I don't necessarily think the problem exists at Central MUFON per se. I think that – Instead, Central MUFON has sort of thrown up their hands and said, I have, you know, we have no way of controlling this. And we're, yeah. and we're never going to be able to control the people who do this. So we're just going to stay out of it and let them keep giving us money. You know, and I didn't feel comfortable being a part of that. And so I decided to resign. Um, essentially, I gave MUFON an ultimatum. I said, if you, you know, you can, I, I will stay on board if you get rid of this, this person. It was the same person as the first, you know, racism explosion right. that happened. Um, and was told essentially that, you know, they they didn't feel like it was in their power or even in their – it was even a thing they felt uh, required to do to strip that person of membership or control in setting up the conference or any of those things. So I decided, you know, not not a big fan of racism, so I'm not going to be part of that organization. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a very I, – I commend you for that. I, I know a – I know I don't even know his name, so I'm not <laughs> I'm not even, not the guy we're talking about, but a different guy. But there was someone who 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 did like a made a grandstand exit from MUFON when this first happened, and then quietly rejoined like six months to a year later. So it's like 
Come on, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, there's, a, there's like, a lot of Come on, man. Don't fucking do that. So I you commend you, you know, I commend you for for sticking to your guns and and leaving and and actually, you know, unless you're <laughs> I don't think you're secretly working for them now. So uh, this isn't even a secret. This guy's just like, yeah, I'm back. I'm back with MUFON. You know, they're the only game in town, so what can I do? That's like, I don't know, really dude, don't fucking be a part of it. Dude, that's the problem. That's the challenge. It's like they, they really are the only game in town, and it's like if you if you want to, no matter who you talk to, every single major researcher is affiliated with MUFON in some way. You know what I mean? There's just it's, – it's, like, um, it's like they're too big to fail. You know, it's like the bank. Yeah. It's – a crazy situation and it's like they don't don't even have that those many you know that many members like it's not it's not like it's a it's a megalith of people right um and that's why it's kind of cool or i think it's kind of interesting that um groups like you know groups like say to the stars academy or um even just like ufo twitter like people are super active on twitter in that are involved in ufos yeah. Um, you know, we don't necessarily always get along, but they're they're talking and they're thinking and they're fighting cool stuff. And you know what I mean? Like, there there are cool things happening that are outside of the purview or scope of MUFON. I think the challenge is that for most experiencers, for most people who think they've had a kind of continuous problem with these events or whatever, there is no other outlet for them to tell their stories. So if you right. want to work with those people, if you want to talk to those people – you know, you're kind of forced to go through um, that swamp. You know what I mean? And it's it's just so frustrating. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, – and I don't know the exact detail. You know who would know is our, our buddy Jack Brewer, but uh, I don't know the exact details <laughs> of how this all went down. But I was, I was going to say there was another guy who came in to move on with a lot of big ideas, uh, James Carrion. I remember when he came on board mm-hmm. and – it was kind of, and I don't, you know, he didn't leave for the same reasons you did, but it was a very similar kind of trajectory where it's like, all right, I'm in, and now, you know, we're, this is, we're going to, I think the whole thing was like, we're going to get this up and running for the 21st century was sort of like his, his, his thing. And within like a year yeah. or two, he was out and he was, I think he became like a pretty hardened skeptic about the whole UFO phenomenon in general. So it's like, <laughs> move on is just, they're not. That this is who they are, and they're not really gonna really change too much. It's it, 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 the whole organization feels very antiquated. Um, you know, it just feels kind of like like very it, it, almost in a sense too, like a mutual desperation society where Mupon's like, hey, this is the best we can get. These are the people, and I'm not dissing the people who are in Mupon because there's a lot of cool folks who are in Mupon, but at the, like you were saying before, it's like they're like, hey, we can't control these people, so. What they do is what they do, and the people who, and the people who are on the local level and everything, they don't really have any. Like I said before about the guy there that I that I don't know the name of, <laughs> they they don't have anywhere else to go <laughs> if they well. want to investigate these things. So it's like, like I said, it's a mutual desperation society almost, or something. No, absolutely. It's a it's a huge um, it's a huge sort of it's just such a big challenge because if. So MUFON's members tend to be older. They tend to be uh, whiter than the population, right? I mean, they tend to be more conservative in their views generally. Um, so it is it is sort of an antiquated organization. I, I don't think that's necessarily by design, but I think it is, you know, kind of by demographics, right? Like that's just kind of the way that those viewpoints are going to go. 
And yeah. the the biggest or the hardest thing for me at least is trying to figure out a way or finding ways again to because there are good people in MUFON. You know what I mean? Absolutely, there are good yeah. people there as part of that group. So how do you work with them but get around those issues? Or can you, you know? Yeah, it's a very tricky thing. And uh, for it's funny in a way because, like, when I got into this, like, almost 20 years ago, everybody was kind of – the attitude of a lot of people was that, like, oh, MUFON's on the way out, MUFON's dying and everything. But it's like MUFON's been dying now for, like, 20 years. It's still <laughs> somehow still around. So I don't, I don't I know, when, quite, quite know what to make of it. When I'm, you know, when I'm on my, it's, it's like that old, uh, oh, it really is. It's, it's there every time that something looks like it's going to be kind of the end for it, because there is no other alternative that's sort of, it stays because there's nothing else, you know, um, people don't feel like there's any other good place to talk about this or come up with those ideas or. I don't know, just think about them generally. And it's such a shame because there's good, there are good forums to do that, right? There's, I mean, I don't know, you don't, you don't need MUFON to investigate UFOs, (laughs) right? Like you don't need MUFON to go out there and talk to people about their experiences or go to the conferences or any of those things. Um, So I don't know, man. Yeah, it's, it's a very strange situation because I think at the end of the day, like you said, they're probably they're they're going to be around. You know, there's a lot of money behind MUFON, and the and frankly, the database they've built is the database of cases they've built is not necessarily, I think, useful for looking at what looking at the actual state of like UFOs, right? Like that that database can't tell you what a UFO looks like. What that database though can tell you is what do people who report UFOs think a UFO looks like. Right, because it's there's no yeah. way of, of discerning a good case from a bad case. So even the data they've collected is is mainly kind of a moot. You know, it's not answering the question they want to answer. So it's kind of a it's just a weird. I don't know, man. <laughs> it's just a weird circle, you know. Yeah, yeah. I always found it kind of interesting that it was like because uh, I met a few people from MoveOn last year. It was like the closest I. I mean, I've known people who move on for years, but this was like the we we kind of had a chance to sit down and talk a little bit about what, what the organization's like and everything. And it's very like we. It's just something I'm not really would. I I can't almost wrap my head around. This is like the case of a lot of people in the field and a lot of their passions in a sense. Because uh, I feel like I'm more of an observer of all this. Um, but it's like some of these folks, they, they just like, they like go out, they, you know, they get the call, they, they get, they distribute the cases, whatever. Like, let's say you're the South Dakota MUFON, you're in South, you know, if you're one of the investigators, if you've taken the tests and everything, then, then you're tasked with going out and, and interviewing the person and, and, you know, trying to get in the sketches and studying, you know, and, you know, investigating all the cases and stuff. And to me, it's like, I don't really, that's. That's a lot of fucking work, <laughs> fucking work, dude, for for the I to show it's the ISS or whatever. So I always was like, ah, I, I like the idea of having a place to go every month and talking about this kind of stuff. But to me, I, I and I guess people like that. People like doing the investigations, but I never really it never really clicked with me where it was like, oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. It's like it's like more, yeah. it sounds like more boring than a ghost hunt. I think pe- people like the idea of doing the investigations when they think it's going to be like, you know, 
Mulder and Scully going out there and you talk to somebody and then a craft flies overhead and you're like, oh my God. Or like, that's what people want to want to think this is like. They don't want to think it's, you know, walking around a field in 30 degree weather with a crappy cell phone camera taking pictures of, you know, the, the backyard of some guy who's like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's largely not interesting. It's largely challenging. It's largely hard to do. And frankly, I think that's also partly why MUFON is able to exist is because they have been able to find people willing to do that work. You know? Yeah. Like if, it, if it weren't for MUFON, really, we wouldn't know. Um, I mean, not that MUFON really shares their cases in any kind of vocally public way, but if it, were, if it weren't for MUFON and MUFON investigators, we wouldn't know a lot about modern UFO sightings, you know, in modern UFO cases, because you'd get the stuff that makes its way to the internet and, you know, whatever. But, um, but in terms of kind of like a large scale data set and, and collection of that info and stuff, that's only coming from MUFON. So, I mean, you know, it's hard. I'm a person who feels like if you love something, you should be critical of it so that it can get better, you know? Yeah. Um, I always give you an, the, I always give you the example of you know I'm a, I'm a hockey guy so I love the New York Rangers, but the New York Rangers are a terrible hockey team. They're a terrible hockey organization. They have been since <laughs> I've been a kid. You know what I mean? So, but I love them. <laughs> you know what I mean? I go to I, I go to the games. I have loads of jerseys. I have the posters for a team that can't win. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, can't win yeah. a game, right? Um, so there's I think that's the kind of mindset people need to have about a lot of this in some ways is. If you love this subject, if you think there's something cool here, if you yourself feel like you had an example of a of a of an experience, um, you know, shouldn't you want you should be the person fighting the hardest to get rid of all of the crap, you know, all the stuff that makes you look like a kook, all the stuff that makes this subject look stupid and silly and, you know, uh, just just terrible. You know, you should be trying yeah. to get rid of that stuff. But instead, a lot of people have taken, I think, you know, frankly, the MUFON approach, which is there's just too much crap, so we got to sit in it. You know? It's, just, it's a yeah. terrible approach. <laughs> it's a terrible way of looking at things. Yeah, exactly. Because I think also, yeah, nobody wants to spearhead the creation of a new MUFON if they're, you know, if they're like a dis- disenfranchised MUFON member or whatever. They just want to go out to that field and and look at the tree line and shit. So they don't really, they yeah, don't really, you know, there's a certain skill set for each thing, I think. And it's like, you need, you need someone with a lot of time and, and, and interest in organize, organizing something like that. And I don't know well, too many know, people who do that. What's funny actually is, so I, I actually just this week, um, I just this week announced that I've taken on the director of science position for Skyhub, which is, um, a group of really, really smart people, computer programmers and software developers and um, just folks that know their stuff who are developing an open source platform to make essentially um, detection devices that can go in your backyard or on your house or in a room or whatever. And they they connect to the Internet, and all of that data that gets collected gets uploaded if you want it to. Um, and essentially it's like it's 24-7 tracking of the sky um, from a certain location, right? If there's things up there, you're going to see them on this damn camera, you know? Um, mm-hmm. That doesn't, you know, and it doesn't require a lot of, I mean, it requires a lot of work and a lot of kind of that structural work you're talking about, but we're 
I think there's a lot of cool ideas out there right now where people are trying to think of ways to get around the MUFON problem of how do we collect data? First off, how do we collect data in a, in a strong way that doesn't um, that doesn't require a un, you know a, a lower a, a, an investigator who maybe is undertrained is trained badly or even if they're really well trained just get something wrong right like how do we remove that factor of human error from the from the whole system while still allowing people who want to be into this stuff and want to give their time and effort to be able to build a unit put it in their house put it outside whatever and then collect data you know so yeah. that's, I think there's a lot of cool ideas out there for stuff like that and we're not the only group doing a kind of scalable system where um, you can kind of do some stuff like this but um, I think it's going to be really cool then I think I think cool things are around the corner you know yeah well <laughs> yeah don't fall into the disclosure trap <laughs> that's not like oh, man, no, that's it's not like happen. Those... it's going to happen Aliens are going to be on the cover of the New York Times. It's all coming down the pipe. Oh, my God. Let's hope they have a cure for the coronavirus. Otherwise, I don't know why the fuck they, the fuck they want to show up here. <laughs> I don't um, really want them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, well, it's interesting. I, I, have, I have to revisit what he talked about with me, like, shit, almost over a decade ago. But, uh, Peter Davenport was talking about sort of a passive radar system. This is, I think, way, this is like way before really cell phones and apps and all that stuff, uh, you know, way before the technology had sort of advanced. But I think you, not necessarily what you guys are doing, but something kind of along the lines of that, like sort of a sweeping, sweeping sort of scan of the sky by having individual smaller stations around the country or something like that. So it's, uh, yeah. it's definitely, you know, a viable concept for sure. Yeah, I think the big, you know, the big challenges of anything like this are going to be scalability and also, you know, the, like the best case scenario is you have enough sensors deployed across the United States or across a single state or, you know, a town, whatever, that you could actually get usable data that can be coordinated all together, right? So if you had a really strong array of these things and a really good hold on all of that um, land and whatever – then you could, in theory, do something like, you know, we see a, we see an event happening on this camera and this grid. Um, do we see the cam- do we see that same event on these other cameras that should be able to pick up the same image, right? Yeah. Do we see any changes in uh, the magnetic fields or uh, pressure or temperature or you know any of these other things, right? Humidity, like, are there changes being picked up that might be of interest? And and that's kind of I think really the best way we're going to get. Um, the best way we're going to get any kind of answers here, because again, otherwise, all you're doing is sort of measuring the perception of the observer, um, and that's right, true of right. any kind of sociological or any kind of time you 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 anytime you survey people about something, you're implicitly also measuring their biases and their own opinions and their ideas that that kind of get away from the data itself. So trying to find a way to separate those is a challenge. And I think part of that challenge is going to be the scalability of the system, but also frankly, the ability to, um, you know, I think our ability technologically to have right now, we are, we are talking, I'm talking to you through um, what 10 years ago would have been considered the most sophisticated computer in the world. (laughs) Um, 
So you know, it, it, it seems like technology is on the progression that eventually something like that or something that could help us kind of answer these questions by using big data, by using big data is kind of the wrong, the wrong buzzword, I guess, but something to answer this by being able to deploy technology in more uh, sophisticated ways, it seems like it's just a matter of time. Um, and of course, scientists have been wrong about that for a very long time, right? We thought we would be curing all diseases, um, you know, a hundred years ago, <laughs> right? It was just a matter of time then and here we are. So, you know, scientists are wrong sometimes in, in the forever prescient words of uh, Mac from It's Always Sunny. But, uh, you know, I think, there's, I think, again, science and sort of these questions and people's perception of these questions seem to be coming to um, seem to be coming to a head. And, and whether or not that means that, you know, these questions will be answered in a, in a, in a way that I think the disclosure advocates would be happy with, or it means that we go through another one of these kind of cycles where, um, a pseudoscientific idea gets kind of pushed aside and shrunk in its importance. Um, I don't know. I think either one of those is going to happen. It's going to be interesting. I, I doubt the status quo will be maintained. Yeah, it's interesting. So kind of like your, it will, your, the, the idea of the thing you're working on, so, uh, almost like akin to like when somebody robs a bank or whatever, then they go and like grab all the different cameras from down the street. So it's like, well, this one shows. This one might show a half the license plate, and then this one might give us a look at the guy's face, and that so you can kind of piece together what what just happened as the as the as the bank robber was driving away by the different camera perspectives down the street, almost. Exactly. Yeah. You know the the I guess sort of the answer or the another analogy here would be something. I mean, that's that's the perfect analogy. You're you're 100 percent correct. That's kind of the idea, right? The other idea too is that if you're able to collect like, for example, right right now, we have a lot of videos that come online where, you know, half the people on YouTube are saying, that's a, that's a drone. And then you got, like, one guy who's like, that's, that's a space station. And then another guy who's saying, well, that's a plane. And then you got, you know, a million people saying, like, I bet it's an alien. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, we, we, don't, we don't actually have a good understanding or a good answer to the question of, like, well, what is a drone – what are the limits of what a drone can do on a camera system, right? Because people yeah. are taking pictures from different cameras, from different locations. Everything is different. We don't know the temperature, the pressure. We don't know any of the other stuff. The idea here is not only to get a, a bunch of different data points um, at different locations, but also to have them coming through the same types of sensors, so that all ah. those questions, right? What does a drone look like on this camera versus that camera? Well, we're using one, you know, we're we're using one sort of device, right? And the goal eventually is to be able to, you know, use some of our, you know, programming skills and our mathematics and our sort of just analysis skills to figure out, well, hey, this is what a drone looks like, right? So here's some stuff that maybe someone can can, maybe somebody who's really smart and really good at this can hoax a UFO event. Um, in some way that tricks all of us and everything else. But what they won't be able to do or what they, we hope won't be able to do is trick some of those underlying mathematical trends that we notice. Yeah. You know, so I'll give you an example, right, from, from medicine. Um, diseases that are, that are real versus diseases that are not real, that are psychologically based, 
Um, and I don't mean that psychological diseases aren't real in any way, right? Like mental illness is very real and requires treatment and everything else. But what I'm talking about are things like, you know, electromagnetic sensitivity syndrome, right? That are, that are, that are based on all of our medical science appear to just be um, a form of obsessive compulsive disorder right, or an anxiety disorder. Um, yeah. Diseases like that that have no physical basis or seem to have no physical basis behave differently in the statistics than diseases that do have a physical, environmental, or chemical basis. Um, you know, the same thing is true for, you know, uh, diseases that, you know, how they spread through populations, right? There are, there are kind of trends that we notice in the underlying math of those cases that suggest that this is a real thing versus this is a fake thing, right? Or this is a, a hoax, or this is someone making up that they're sick or whatever. So, one of the answers I always give, or one of the things that I think is so interesting with all of this UFO stuff is, okay, one person maybe can hoax a single event, but 10,000 people hoaxing very similar events that have very similar underlying trends to them that seem to fit statistically, um, that I think is much harder. Yeah. And that's, that kind of what we, that's frankly what I pitched to move on was this idea that if this is a real event, then there should be something, there should be some statistical, some, some, some statistically relevant trends we can pull out of the data, right? There, there have to be, because if they're not physical events, if they're not events that are happening in any real way, um, or even psychological events that are happening in some real way to people that are experiencing them, then, yeah. I mean, if you can't measure them, then they're just belief, and then you don't need a stupid science guy, right? You need a priest. So chill, right? <laughs> I'm done. Exactly. Um, exactly. So there's there's just like there's a lot of cool stuff. There's a lot of interesting science. There's a lot of very the academic pedigree of some of these questions is very long and very um very important, frankly, you know? Yeah. But the UFO subject kind of ignores all of that stuff because you know, there's a guy saying saying that he worked on spacecraft at Area fifty one. And that guy's cooler. <laughs> yeah, that's that more, yeah. Stuff. Exactly. Yeah. It's a yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting world. I alternate between like rolling my eyes and kind of shaking my head in disgust at the at the super fans and then also kind of like finding them oddly endearing in a way. Um, you know, cuz they get so they get so excited about this shit and it's like, "Oh my god, you really you're really into UFOs. <laughs> wow. It's funny. So. I know. You know, man, it's so, uh, it's funny on the, like the times that, the times that kind of like the group agrees with you and then suddenly you're like a hero on, you know, the UFO internet or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. or any of these things, like, I think it's with any kind of fandom, right? It's like when people really agree with you and, you know, want to kind of promote your ideas or promote your stories or whatever, it feels really uh, affirming. You know, it feels good to be part of the crowd. Um, and then when they don't, it feels terrible. You know, like it's not fun. Um, and that's also a problem with this stuff is it's because a lot of people, I think, accept that there is no, like, because a lot of people accept or think right now that there's no underlying reality to any of this stuff in any, in any I don't want to say any underlying reality. What I mean, I guess, is that a lot of this is metaphysics. It's like, you know, um, they, a lot of people today 
seem to believe that a UFO event should be treated the same way that you treat a religious event. So, you know, just like if someone came to me and said, I, I think I saw the Virgin Mary in a dream, and she talked to me, and it made me change my life for the better, um, you know, what do you say to that? Like, you know, no, that's that probably didn't happen, and you shouldn't have changed your life for the better, right? Like, you want to be that's terrible, right? Um, so right. just like I think that they feel that people take a hands-off approach when it comes to other belief systems like religion, they believe that the same kind of hands-off approach should play in with UFO belief. Um, and I just don't, I just don't buy that. You know what I mean? If they want it to be treated like a science, then it's, then it's going to be critiqued. It's going to be attacked. It's going to be um, broken apart. You know, people don't just. Yeah. No, no scientist ever said, I just believe this because it's how I feel. And other scientists were like, oh, cool. <laughs> right, exactly. I feel, I feel that way too. You know, it, that's not the way it works. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's very much a matter of faith with a lot of folks. And uh, it's it's just interesting. There's like, and, and, uh, and, and I'm not even saying necessarily kind of like what you were saying about this being an unreality or whatever, but to me it's like, to me, like our present reality that we, I think we can all kind of mostly agree on, is is like, to me, more pressing than whatever the UFO thing is. I've I've, I've said the last few weeks on the show, it's like, I would love to know what UFOs are. Um, I, I always advocated, you know, that they should tell us just because uh, I'd like to know. I mean, that's for no other reason. It would be kind yeah. of fun to find out. But it's like, now it's not. People are going to listen and be like, oh, fuck, it has been all on the soapbox again. Now's not the time for, for UFO disclosure. That's my, that's my take on, on that. If things settle so down, funny, we, can get, we can get our fucking act together as a country, like in the next two years. You know, maybe, maybe it may take another couple of years. Who knows? If we, that's a, that's a, that might be miraculous. I don't know. But, you know, I don't think we need to get our shit together here before we can – Deal with uh, complex the, the complexity of that. When when people can't agree to wear a fucking mask in the middle of a pandemic, introducing aliens and uh, you know visitors from the future or another dimension or wherever the fuck they come from, it's like none of that yeah. none of that is 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 tenable with the current state of our world right now. That's just kind of how, how I feel because I've seen these arguments where it's like everyone's going to stop and. And fucking realize and unite as as and unite as as human earthlings, and it's like no fucking no no they won't do like you're you're living in a fucking dream world like people aren't uh, they won't unite if if we can't unite yeah, over dude. a fucking pandemic that's killing people hundreds of thousands of people every day like what makes you think we're going to unite over fucking aliens no it's not going to happen I think a lot of I think a lot of people believe like I it's it's actually really funny. I had I was talking to somebody last night, and they asked me if 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 the government came out and said, "We know there's a lot going on right now, but we thought this would be like a, you know a time to mention this or whatever." Like, aliens are real, right? If the Senate came out and said aliens are real, what would be my yeah. response? Um, and I said that my response would be to, if I was you know ever to ask the Senate anything, I would ask them what. What terrible shit are you hiding? <laughs> right. Like, what are you trying to get yeah. me to not pay attention to? That you're like, oh, aliens are are real right now, yo. Like, guess what? Aliens are real. And then you know, another hundred thousand people die from COVID. 
Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's a. It is. It is not. I, I agree with you completely. It's. It's not the time, and people sort of. You know, I often wonder what. Again, a lot of these ideas have been kind of considered and thought about for a really long time. You know, um, one of one of the most influential philosophers, um, love him or hate him, of you know. Uh, the history of philosophy was Karl Marx, right? And right. Marx, um, Marx had this idea about technological, technological. It wasn't just Marx that had this. Engels also kind of promoted this, and then today it's gone into a, a field of kind of study called futurism. Um, but they had this idea that technology and economics are inextricably linked, and that yeah. economics kind of determines the technology that's accepted and vice versa. So the famous quote is that, um, you know, the feudal system had the cart and wagon and capitalism had the steam, has the steam engine, right? That the ability to transport goods, the ability to use energy in a more efficient way um, meant suddenly that you no longer had to have power centralized in these small places where it was, you know, a hundred people under one ruler in little kind of fiefdoms. Right now, with the steam engine, you could have societies that traded with each other and moved information and materials and everything else across much bigger places. And so you could have kind of these larger um, capitalist countries, right? Like you know, the United States and France and Europe or England and you know the European Union and all these other groups, right? And the idea of the idea of alien technology coming down and giving us free energy, right? If aliens are able to, tra- if aliens are able to travel the stars and get here to earth, that suggests that they are able to do kind of two things that would immediately shatter the world, like to the world as we know it. Right. Right. Um, the first one is they are able to, first off, they're able to travel distances that seem impossible to us. And so they're able to exist. They're able to live that long, right? Like how are they able to extend their lives to travel that distance in that time? And the second one is they have, they must have access to an extremely efficient fuel source, right? Because otherwise, how are they actually getting the fuel to travel here over that extended distance and that that extended time? If we had access to a fuel like that, think about how, everything, everything would change, right? Yeah. It would no longer cost you any money, essentially, to travel or to transport anything across the surface of the earth, right? So suddenly you have people who are moving from uh, very, very poor locations, locations without good agricultural or, or water resources, to places that are very rich in those resources. You have people who are able to now transport um, very luxury goods that otherwise would not be able to travel or not be able to be given to some places um, for almost no money, right? The the world economy would collapse immediately. Exactly. If we had access to that kind of energy fuel, right? Um, And and so, you know, there's kind of a a big debate going on right now about whether or not these aliens are, are... are harmful to us or not? Do they mean to do us harm or would they be benevolent or whatever? But the part of that that's always kind of ignored is they may, they may not mean us harm, but, a, but they will change us 
right? Like they, they, yeah. they would necessarily change us. And although that change might be really good for some people, you know, the ability to access free energy in that way would be, or, or nearly free energy would be really, really great for the poor, the world. Um, frankly, it probably wouldn't be very good for the rich. You know, it, it would not be very good for um, the United States, you know, in terms of geopolitics and control and everything else. It would, um, you know, so I think there's there's kind of a question overall of, or I, I think a naivety of thinking that, you know, the, the threat is only physical. The threat is only that aliens would come down with laser beams or, you know, uh, crap like that, right? Like, yeah, yeah. It is a it is a legitimate a, a legitimate uh, change in worldview and thought process, and it would upend our our lives as we know them um, completely. You know, the <laughs> it would just change everything. And so to think yeah, that that could yeah. happen, and it would, you know, to think to think that that would happen, and it would only bring positive things. Like maybe in a hundred years, things would kind of go back to normal. Um, but think about what happens now when um, when transport gets really easy across borders, right? We have refugees. We have immigrants that come to countries, and then there's big problems with people not wanting those immigrants or, um, you know, any of those kinds of things. You know, when trade routes um, fall apart, like with this, with this pandemic, um, you know, one supply chain stopped working and it ruined the American economy, you know? Um, exactly. The world, yeah. would not be, the world would not be good right after an alien visitation <laughs> or alien right, disclosure. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's a very I, – I, yeah, I, I hammer that a lot on the show in a sense just that it's like – I don't think a lot of people think through the logistics of this. Like they just go, oh, they're gonna tell us about the truth about UFOs and aliens, but it's like, okay, then what? Then then what's gonna happen, dude? Like we, as I said uh, multiple times on the show recent weeks, like we can't, we can't, you know, aside from going out to the space to the space station, which is like going down to the gas station, it's like we can't leave here. So so what what, what they're gonna come here or, or something like that? I don't know, but it's like that. It, they don't, it doesn't seem like the logistics are very well thought out it's just like just tell us no. the truth and we'll and we'll deal with it after that it's like fucking i don't know dude i'd rather i i'd rather just maybe try, try and figure it out on our own or something here you know because it's uh yeah i feel like having 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 this knowledge foisted upon upon the human race is maybe maybe dangerous maybe uh not well not well thought out so like you said if they if they said that it would be like part of me would be like okay what the hell is all right, why why are you telling us this now? You know, are they coming here to fucking eat us? Like, what's why are you why are you preparing us for for this revelation? All twenty going to bring. Right, what else can twenty twenty do to us? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I always thought like the best way to do this, and I always thought like that. Yeah, it still could happen. Would be for them to be like send somebody to Mars, and then they're like, oh, we found. We found like ruins, so that way you're like, okay, you know, there's aliens, but we, they must have died a long time ago. But this tells us that they existed, so that maybe they're out there somewhere. But so it's kind of like a half step into into the disclosure thing. That's always that's always that's been my preferred form of uh, of disclosure in a way. But I, I feel like they could pull that mm. off pretty easily, you know. But whether they want to or not, who knows? 
Mm. Now, I got a question. For, well, well, I, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I have many questions. I, I, I host the show, so I should have questions. Uh, <laughs> but your background makes you ideal for uh, what, I, what me and my friends like to call the alien alloys, which uh, a lot of, <laughs> I think, what, what are they called now? The metamaterials. Meta I liked it better when they were alien alloys. As they were described in the New York Times in, in the now infamous article, and I guess sort of I, I like to keep things on a very I like to say like I'm like the dusty roads of uh, of paranormal podcasting. I just like to keep it on the uh, level of the common man here. So like I guess my question basically is based on your scientific background, like how easily if I brought you a piece of metal and I was like, hey Chris, uh, you know I think this came from a flying saucer, can you know? Can you like how easy is it to actually figure out if it actually came from a flying saucer? I kind of will use the example in a sense of uh, my friend Tyler Coke John. I don't know if you know Dr. Tyler Coke John. He's he yeah, into yeah, a lot yeah. of this stuff too. Yeah, he's a great dude. Um, he's uh, he's he's more in, in the medical realm, and and uh, you know he said like a lot of these folks were like, oh, I'm an alien hybrid, or these or these ladies who were like. Um, you know, and my heart breaks for them, don't get me wrong, who say, like, they had a baby and the baby was taken by an alien. Um, mm-hmm. Like, he said, like, that there's medical tests they can do to confirm whether or not any of these scenarios actually happen. Like, they can, they can look at your sure. DNA and, and figure out if, if uh, you know, if, you're, if you have some kind of a abnormality in your DNA that would suggest that you're a hybrid, or whatever, you know, or that you had an alien baby. You know, some people think, oh, I mm-hmm. was abducted and I had an alien baby. It all happened while I was up on the ship, and then I came back. It's like, well, they can, they can medically figure that out just from looking at your DNA, your genetics, your blood work, whatever, all that stuff. So I guess the question, tie that back to what I'm asking you, is like, given your scientific background, like how, how easy or difficult would it be to discern if what I brought to you was a piece of a flying saucer, because I guess my a lot of my my bone of contention this is a long and twisting question, but my, my my bone of contention in a way is like they made a big deal a few like a year or two ago that and I saw you recorded in the Vice article about it, um, you know about how they acquired uh, TDSA acquired some pieces of arts parts, and it's like the fucking arts mm-hmm. parts have been around for like since 1997 at least. At least, because I was just looking at an old Art Bell episode where they were talking about it with Linda Moulton House. So it's like, how the fuck, how do you not know if this is from a flying saucer or not? Like, it's been like 30 years, like, or 25 years. You should not, like, so that's my question. Is it really that difficult to know if this alleged alien alloys are alien or not? Uh, or, or is it something that you can just put it under the spectrometer and in 10 minutes so you're like, like, no, this is a tin can? So... Um, so it's a really int- so okay. It's a pretty. I actually talk about this. I wrote an article about this specifically and spoke about how how would you tell if a piece of material was extraterrestrial in some way? You know, the first yeah. way, the simplest way, and this is the way that they always talk about, and it's it's by far the dumbest way, is to test the isotopic ratios of the material itself. The idea being the Earth, when it was created, uh, you know, kind of it set in motion a chain reaction of nuclear decay that occurs for unstable, um, unstable materials, right? So, like, you know, uranium is like a common example that we think of, 
But another one is carbon. Carbon-14 um, decays. And depending on how much of that carbon-14, like the percentage of carbon-14 there is compared to the rest of the carbon in the material, that ratio tells you approximately how old something is. Right? That's okay. what radiocarbon dating is. Um, that So other planets, though, or other parts of the universe that were created before the Earth have different radioactive isotopic decay rates. Or not decay rates, but they have different decay ratios. So yeah. there are there is a potential that if a material – and this is how we actually test meteorites to see if meteorites are, are from here or if they are from space um, or, or other space debris – the way that we test it is we test the isotope ratios of those materials, and if those materials have a different decay or if they have a different ratios that we'd expect to see on Earth um, for the different elements that are part of the material, then that is a strong indication that they come from space. So that's the first thing, right? But that doesn't tell you if it's a meteorite or if – you know, there's kind of two questions, right? The first question is, did this thing come from space? Is it not from Earth? The second yeah. question is – is this something that was made by an alien? You know, because stuff falls from space all the damn time. You know, yeah, so that's yeah, not exactly. really that exotic. Um, so the second question is really where it gets hard. In the second question, there's kind of a couple of different ways you can think about this. The first one is, is this, a, is this does the material show um, types of material or what, what a scientist would call a thermodynamic phase or a crystalline phase, a solid phase, a material phase, whatever you want to call it, does it show a phase of, of matter or a phase of material or something like that? Not really a phase of matter, but does it show a, a thermodynamic phase that we don't expect to find on Earth? So, for example, um, there are labs in the United States and across the world right now who, when meteorites fall, they take the meteorites, they take them apart into their kind of constituent pieces, and they see if they can find metal alloys that don't exist on Earth. Because some of those alloys are magnetic, and um, the Earth is running out of magnets. So it's, oh, it's wow. actually like a really big problem, right? Um, so and not, not really, we're not really running out of magnets per se, but we're running out of the materials that make good magnets, the rare Earth elements. Um, yeah. So that's one way that they do do this now, is they look to see, is there a thermodynamic phase that can't exist on Earth? So that's one thing. We could check to see if there's a thermodynamic phase that exists in that material that isn't on Earth. Um, on, that, on that part of the question, the two of the Stars Academy material that we know of so far has failed, as far as we know, right, based on it being the Linda Moulton Howe arts parts sample that's been around forever, right? It fails yeah, that yeah. test. It also fails the isotopic ratio tests, but that's fine. The, the kind of second big thing would be, is it in a physical form that we cannot engineer on Earth. Now, what I mean right, by that right. is, is the structure of the material itself, like if we, if we looked at this thing under a microscope, under a, a transmission electron microscope, and found that it was a perfectly crystalline structure um, that's you know, built into shapes like a five-pointed star um, that are really pretty and you know, whatever, all this other stuff, we might think that's not something that we can make on Earth. Right? That's, that's interesting, right? Yeah. Um, the problem is that the material isn't like that. In fact, the material is a type of material and a phase of material that we've been able to make consistently since the beginning of um, electrochemistry, 
basically. Yeah. Um, so the material that they have, um, the material they have has layers of magnesium and bismuth that are uh, seemingly alternating, right? But they are alternating. The layers themselves are, uh, are micrometers thick, hundreds of micrometers thick. Now, yeah. a micrometer is – it's, it's about the same thickness as a piece of aluminum foil, approximately, are, are yeah. each of those layers, right? Huh. So first yeah. off, that tells you a little bit it's not that interesting, right? But the other part of this that makes it not so interesting is the fact that we have been able to, since the 1950s, generate in a lab materials that have alternating layers of, of metal or aluminum silicate or whatever – um, at the nanoscale, so uh, you know, thousands of times smaller than the material that To the Stars Academy has. Um, so in my PhD, that was the materials that I worked on were lamellar structures, layered structures. Um, the materials that I was generating in the lab were alternating layers of two nanometer thickness, which means that they wow. are only a couple dozen atoms thick. Um, and there are labs that can do plating of materials that are individual atoms thick. Um, in, in Boston, there's like a dozen of them. Um, you know, we, we, from our houses, we could throw a rock and probably hit one of those labs. You know what I mean? It's all over the damn place in the, in the base did, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So, and the funny part is they sound really exciting, but they're almost always like in some fucking office park with a picnic table, and you, you probably drive always. by them all the time. Always, right? They're always next to an at not your average Joe's. Um, you know, it's, it's always that. It's always <laughs> exactly. that business, right? Exactly. Um, yep, no, I mean, yep. but it, but it's, but so on that front, the To the Stars Academy materials fail spectacularly as well because they're not even, they're not even hard to synthesize, right? If, if, um, you know, if you were a, if you were a, so besides the fact that they, these types of materials are made as industrial wastes. Uh, somewhat frequently. Um, it kind of depends on the process and everything else. And bismuth is a little weird. And, you know, so it, it kind of makes sense that this would be of interest at least. If And there's frankly not that many people doing research into layered solids of this sort because it hasn't been a thing we cared about for a long time. Um, you know, bismuth has very limited – bismuth is very valuable if for what it's good at doing, but it, it up until kind of recently had limited – um, you know, heavy science interest, right? It was used, it was a, yeah, yeah. A, a metal that was produced in industrial refining and it was created for its ability to alloy with magnesium and pull out lead and all these other things. But, um, you know, it, it wasn't really used in high technology um, until recently. And so the, the, the reason that they went from calling these things alloys to calling them metamaterials is first off, they're technically not alloys um, ah, okay. because they're, they're they're not mixtures of metal. They don't, you know, um, they're not mixtures of metal, right? So an alloy is a different thing, first off. Mm-hmm. But they're also not really metamaterials. A metamaterial is any material that has been engineered specifically to alter um, the, basically like the photonic or the optical properties of the material. So an example of a metamaterial in at least kind of a, kind of a simplistic way would be a surface that has been engineered to look red. And not by paint, but like by structure, by diffraction of the light from onto the surface, yeah. like an, an anodized aluminum. Um, so 
And, but again, though, that's something that we've known how to do. Like we're still kind of getting the, getting the fundamental understanding of that way that that optical, you know, engineering is possible with these materials, but they, they have no evidence. Those metamaterials are again, thousands of, uh, thousands of times smaller than the materials to the stars Academy is talking about. Um, yeah. you know, to give you an example of, of kind of the difference in scale, um, you know, it's like, uh, it's, it's like comparing a basketball with uh, a mountain. You know what I mean? That's the difference oh, wow. in scale we're talking about here. Um, they, they are talking about a material that's the, the scale of a mountain and the science community is able to engineer things at the scale of a basketball down to like a, a golf ball, you know, cause we can do single atom deposition. Now we can do um, the growth of single layers of material um, atom by atom. Yeah. So essentially, I guess that's how you would figure it out. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> but I guess the question I said is like, why the fuck is it take? Like, why is it, is it kind of like the sort of thing where it's like, uh, you could you could probably figure it out kind of easily, which is why we haven't quote unquote figured it out yet because they're just going to keep trying. They're just going to keep running tests. Let's just run. Let's just run a different test on this and see if like, wait another ten years and we'll run the test again, kind of thing. That's kind of partially what I wondered in a way because like it should be fairly cut and dry. I mean, I don't know. I guess how about this? What would like what would something that that came from an alien spaceship. Do you even can you even like fathom what that would like look like to you scientifically? Would it be something that after you ran all these tests, you'd be like, all right, there's no other explanation than that this was manufactured by you know an intelligent species from off the planet. There's no other way. Could you well, even could, could would that even be be discernible? I think I think it could be. The challenge is. Well, like, so first off, the challenge is, you know, we're kind of, we're talking about, um, I always think about, when I think about this stuff, that it, it sometimes feels like we're, you know, we're running before we can even walk. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we don't even have a good picture of a UFO. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. So, who, you know, who the hell knows what they're made of, right? Like, people are still arguing that they're psychic projections of the collective unconscious or whatever, you know, if. Um, so if they're that, then we're never going to get a piece of craft. If we assume that this thing is a, if we assume that it is a physical craft, that it's traveled here through space, that it's, it's able to, it's able to have um, intelligent life on board, right? Then you would expect that it would at the very least have some kind of heat or radiation shielding on the outer surface. Right, because it has to be able to get through the atmosphere untouched, and it has to be able to do all kinds of physical maneuvers in the atmosphere that, like, just by friction, would destroy any other airplane. Right? Yeah. So you can think then that that surface has to have, depending on the part of the ship that we got, right? And I would argue that it's probably more likely that we would get like an outer an outer surface, right? If we think about like plane crashes, um, you know, I'm not sure what piece is the most often recovered from a plane crash, but cause you know, for all we know, this might be a piece of alien sofa. You know what I mean? Right, like, right. This might be a chair on their airplane or their, their UFO 
and we're seeing how, you know, we should be testing for springiness and comfort and not for, you know, thermal properties. Um, right, right, exactly. It's kind of like the idea, like, I forget who the skeptic was, but they were always like, bring me a, bring me a, an alien toilet seat and then we'll talk. And it's like, well, what if you did? And you're like, the alien's like, yeah, it's made of fucking plastic, just like yours, dude. Right. How, how else would you make well, a toilet seat? Wait, what the hell, man? Um, yeah. Well, no, but it's then, a really, just it's a really with, good question. you're just left with a stolen alien toilet seat and nobody fucking believes you. So who knows? And now you just look like a, you just look like a pervert, right? Like you're not a scientist <laughs> yeah, exactly. anymore. Um, no, but that, that is a really legitimate point though, right? Like we don't even, we're making a lot of assumptions, but if I was going to, if I was in the assuming game, which if you're into UFOs, you're into the assuming game always, cause we don't know anything. Right. Um, I'd say that I would, ex- what I would be searching for are things like, um, extreme heat shielding capabilities. I would be looking for physical strength. Is the material able to withstand so one of the biggest challenges on Earth about traveling to space is that the the shielding for, like, the stuff that you need to protect you from radiation and temperature and pressure and, and all that other stuff, all that stuff is really heavy. So our ships are really heavy, and so you need a buttload of fuel to get you from point A to point B. Right. So although... First off, you would expect that uh, if they have infinite energy to get here, um, which they would need to get here, then maybe they don't care about the weight of their craft. But I would still think or wager that they've advanced to the point that they are able to create very lightweight, very strong materials. So the first thing I would test is the ability of the material to withstand force, right? Like, can it, you know, how much pressure do you have to apply to it to make it crack? Is it brittle? Is it uh, moldable? Is it really, you know, strong? Does it, um, how does it, how does it transfer heat, right? If it's a shielding component on the outer surface of material, you would expect that it's able to um, withstand heat very efficiently, right? Um, maybe the thing is impervious to radar. Maybe it's impervious to um, gamma radiation. Maybe, you know, so there's, there's all kinds of things you could assume that an alien ship should be able to do. I think the ultimate hallmark would be, and that's what makes this so challenging, is the fact that if you, good science posits a hypothesis, tests that hypothesis, and then, and then, uses those results to then further kind of think about what their next test would be, right? Yeah. The problem with a lot of this seems to be their initial assumption is this is a piece of UFO material, and they keep testing it in order to get evidence to prove that hypothesis. So they'll never be right, done right. because you can't, you can't prove a positive, right? Like you, can't, you can't prove that this is an alien material. Outside of an alien coming down and saying, that's from my ship, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, how do you prove yeah. that? So, um, you know, Karl Popper, the famous philosopher of science, talked about you, you, science should be about falsifying claims, not proving them. Um, and so what that means is if they wanted to develop a very good test to say, even if they wanted to test a hypothesis, a hypothesis that this is a UFO debris, it's a piece of a UFO craft, they should be developing tests to try and prove that it is not a piece of UFO craft. And then if none of those tests work, then they're building compelling evidence. Um, yeah. But 
you know, frankly, though, right now, as far as we know, as far as the public knows, the only experimental, the only tests that they've done on these materials are very, very simple. They are um, scanning electron microscope, which is useless, is is frankly a useless – scanning electron microscope in the material science world is one of those tests you add to papers to make them look pretty, but they don't give you any information really. Like maybe about the morphology of your crystals or your materials or stuff like that, but ultimately if you're working on – an advanced material that's it's likely a nanomaterial and therefore SEM won't, won't show you anything interesting at the nanoscale. Um, and then the other tests they've done are isotope ratios, which we've kind of already talked about. Um, but those have limited use as well because, you know, um, first off, they never do enough tests to get any statistically relevant data. Um, but secondly, the range of isotopes that they're looking at for this sample, they're, they're, they're earth ranges. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. They're yeah. staking their claim on this thing being alien on like a 2% difference with a margin of error of like, you know, 5%. So it's, you know, <laughs> it's not exactly uh, a home run. Right. So it's very difficult to like have a cut and dry unless you have it actually, yeah, from the alien, you know, unless you can show that it came from a flying saucer. I like saying flying saucer just to be, just to be kind of a dick. I don't care. <laughs> But if, if, we, you, if, if you can, we can prove, if we can prove yeah. that it either had a structure that we couldn't create on Earth, or it had showed properties that we, there's three things. If it's a if it's a phase or type of material we've never seen before, that is immediate proof of something interesting. The second one would be if this material shows a structure or a physical form that we can't replicate on Earth, that would be interesting. The third one would be if this material is able to do things that other materials on Earth can't do, that would also be interesting. Outside of those three things, though, and even with those three things, you can't necessarily say that these were designed by – it could be a part of an experimental aircraft, right? It, right, it, it exactly. could always be a piece of Earth tech that you know we've just never known about. So, I don't know. It's just yeah. a hard – the material it's I don't very, I and I'm a material I'm a materials guy. I don't think the materials is ever gonna give us the answers we want. You know? We gotta spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens. What kind of radio show is this? Yeah, it's a very difficult sort of avenue to go down and it 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 sounds on the surface very tantalizing. Like I, when I read that original uh, 2017 New York Times article, that was the part that like jumped off the page to me, where it was like, oh, they also have a warehouse full of alien alloys. It was like, what the fuck? What do you? Wait a minute. Now, wait, hold on. Now, what are you talking about here? I don't. I don't yeah. hear about any of the other shit. Where are these alien alloys? Let's give them to a guy like Chris Cogswell and have him figure out where the fuck they came from or what we can, you know. But I guess the other part is. It's seen by many people as like a smoking gun. I think the science is so difficult for people to wrap their minds around that I don't know necessarily if it can ever really be that smoking gun, even if you could like somehow prove it, because it's like uh, no. it's complicated. You know, and yeah, the other man, part is like, okay, so now what? Say so what? You got a little fleck of metal that came, that that fell off a flying saucer. Like, so what do you <laughs> like? Like, what well, are you gonna be- fucking do with it? You can't That's make it. The, the idea, too, is like, if the idea, too, is like, this could never have been made on Earth, it's like, 
Well, congratulations. You have a useless fluck of metal that we can't ever make more of. So Extremely the f- heavy paperweight. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the problem, I think the problem is, or one of the issues is that we assume, like, if humans have basically been, we not basically, we have been unchanged since, you know, 100,000 years ago. You know what I mean? Yeah. Ancient, ancient man, Stone Age man is basically modern humans. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. We just We just didn't have – you know, our technology has changed, but ultimately our, our physical forms, our mental abilities, all that stuff is the same. You know, we've just gotten really good at using tools. Um, so the idea that uh, – that, and that's kind of one of the larger questions I think is – to kind of consider what sort of there have been there have been cases where humans have been um, either through like severe neglect or um, some twist of fate or whatever have kind of been raised or put out into the world without being part of normal society. You know what I mean? Kids that you know lived in. Um, homes where they never learned how to speak or um, people who, you know, uh, you know, wild kids or whatever, right? Like wild kids. Yeah, no I was going to say like kids raised by like wolves that, right? and that, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. There are, there are know, like a handful of stories like that. They're not entirely – it's not entirely folklore. Right. There are a few. No, but when those, when those people transition into society, most of them cannot fully transition, right? They, right. A lot of them never – you know, they don't learn language. They don't um, – they just can't function, you know, because they weren't taught yeah. to function in that kind of society. And I'd argue that even though we're basically the same humans, if you took someone from the Stone Age and put them in today's world and tried to – you know, took an adult from the Stone Age and tried to stick them in our world and have them um, live and function, I, I think they'd probably get a lot of stuff right, but I don't think they'd be able to function. Ultimately, you know, um, to think that the same, to to think that aliens could come down and bring us their technology and we would just be able to pick it up and start using it, I think is, again, kind of a wholly ridiculous idea. Um, You know, my mom can hardly use Netflix. Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And, And Netflix isn't that hard. You know, we're not talking about interstellar travel or, um, you know, a new type of of physics that, uh, you know, fully answers the questions of quantum mechanics or even any of the complicated crap that I'm talking about in terms of material science. You know, like that stuff to an alien civilization that can get here, I would wager would be like first grade stuff. You know what I mean? They'd be like, yeah, of course, everyone knows that, you know? Right, right, exactly, yeah. I, I just – I don't know even – like you said, if we got a piece of their material, um, how would we ever be able to discern their motives, you know? If you right. gave a CD-ROM – if you gave a CD-ROM to someone in 1800s England, could they ever figure out what that CD-ROM was, to, was, was supposed to do, what it was used for? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, you know, and it, would, it could have they, all the information not, in the universe on it, and they would just be like a little plastic thing. They wouldn't even know. Exactly, they didn't. You know. They'd have no idea, right? 
Right. Um, yeah. So I think the same thing is true of us. You know, we're if we got a piece of their material, we might be able to answer some simple questions, right? You know, the CD-ROM example or the CD example. You know, maybe they'd be able to tell. Well, it's it. One side seems to reflect light, and the other side doesn't. And there's colors here, so it seems to be maybe it's like a prism of some sort, or it's made with the same material that a prism is made out of. Um, and you know, it's thin and it flies through the air and whatever. They would be able to come up with some stuff like that. But at the end of the day, they're fundamental understanding of what this thing does um, or how it's made or why it was made, it's completely foreign to them. And I think the idea that we could get a piece of alien technology and then pick it apart, it is a super, um, it's a super kind of like prideful, uh, pig-headed thought. (laughs) Essentially, we're saying that we are so close to the limits of, of our knowledge of science that anything aliens can do, we should be able to do with our same knowledge of science. Exactly. And there is yeah, no yeah, way yeah. that is Very... true. There's no way that's R- true. <laughs> right, right. Well, I was kind of thinking that as you were talking about that. It's like sort of like my, my gripe here with the disclosure thing in a sense where it's like instead of us – instead of like this being foisted on us, I'd much rather prefer us as a species sort of meet whoever they are on a more equal footing. Where it's like, okay, we're tra- yeah. all right, we've advanced enough where we're traveling into space, you know, we're going to other places, and then we encounter them, and they're like, oh, okay, oh, so you can leave your planet too. All right, so here's, let's have a conversation that way instead of us being this the, this little this little species on a rock that can barely get off the rock. It's like, ah, Absolutely. we're really primitive to these people. Uh, you know, I don't even know. They, I, I'd rather be seen as equals. <laughs> to the aliens. I think oh, a lot yeah, of people, you if you ask them, they'd be like, no, we are equal to the aliens. No, we're not, like you just said, we're not fucking equal to the aliens. We're, we're, very, we're just barely figuring out how to get out of here. Yeah, we're, we're, we're hardly above, um, we're hardly above cavemen. You know what I mean? Like, really, in the, in the grand scheme of things, I, I really like, um, I'm a huge, uh, I'm a huge, like, archaeology and, and history nerd, and I, it's one of my like great regrets in my academic training that I never really had the time to take more courses in like ancient Mesopotamia and all that kind of cool stuff that I that now if I had the chance to go back I would totally you know try to learn as much of that as I possibly could. So um I've been I've been listening to actually a great courses plus on ancient Mesopotamia and the professor who teaches it she gives a really interesting and I think compelling example which is thinking about how many generations of humans it has been since humans discovered or first started using written word, right? And it ends yeah. up being, if you, if you just take humans, um, you know, living to be like 100, it's, it's, like, it's like 200, 300 generations. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it is not that many. It's not that many people. You know, it's not that many kind of lifetimes ago that we first started writing things. Um, yeah. You know, so, <laughs> you know, we've, we've progressed a lot, and I guess we should be proud of that as a species. But, you know, um, to think that we'd be able to, again, like, it, I, I think there's kind of two ways of looking at that, right? The first one is, well, in another 200 years, think about the amazing things we'll be able to do, right? That's that's a really kind of positive view on that, I think. Yeah. And the other way I'm thinking of that, the other way of thinking that is, um, 
we really aren't, we're not that different. We're not that evolved. We're not that more, we're not that much more advanced than we, we think we are. And so I think we, we really do need to, uh, I don't know, man, it's, it is like a, it's like a weird pride thing, you know, it's, it's humans yeah, know everything yeah. and we're going to be able to talk to aliens and, you know, we, 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 we won't, we probably won't be able to. Um, at, right, least, right. at least certainly, almost certainly not in our lifetimes, you know, which is a bummer, but we've, we've got, we've got Netflix. So that's something I, yeah, we've got all kinds of great shit. So yeah. In my lifetime, like I'm into it, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, I see you're, you're a lot like me in a sense where it's like, I'm not, it, I can live with this doesn't ever happen. It's like, this isn't the most pressing thing in the world to me. Like whether they, because to me, it's like, I believe in UFOs. I think there's something out there. I don't know what it is. But, uh, you know, so so to me, I always get agitated where it's like the whole drive, a lot of the drive of this thing is cloaked, I guess. I personally think really what they really mean is aliens. But, but it's always like, oh, UFOs are real. UFOs are real. It's like, fucking, we know UFOs are real, dude. Like, a UFO is just an unidentified flying object. We know they're fucking real. Like, we don't know what they are, but they're out there. They're objects. Like, so if we move beyond that, it's like we want to know what they are. We want to know, like, if they're a who, who they are or where they're coming from, you know, so or why yeah, they're fucking they're... coming here. Like, nobody wants to fucking know if they're real or not. We already know they're fucking real. So I see these articles like, like you know, I like the articles like in the mainstream media, like, oh, the government just said UFOs are real. It's like. Well, thanks for catching up with the rest of us. Now let's try and figure out what the fuck they are. Yeah, you know the the government is the government has been the history of the government when it comes to science is is pretty horrible. You know, I mean, I'm, you know, um, the it, it took the government um, it took the government something like thirty forty years to say that pesticide poisoning was real, um, and even right. today they still basically say. You know, you show up with like a thousand dead bees from your field or whatever, and they're like, "No, nah, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know what did that." You know, um, it it took them. You know, the government is so the government is is notoriously bad when it comes to technology or science that doesn't directly benefit them, right? And that makes sense because the government, outside of those parts of the government that fund fundamental research. It's not in the government's job to promote science, right? Like the government, the government and the military and these other forms of the government that kind of do that stuff, they have their own goals and their own motives. And, and so the stuff that gets promoted um, are the things that go to those goals. So yeah. it's always kind of interesting to me to have kind of the people who are interested in this stuff say that they – they really, really want the government to come out and say that these things are real because, like you said, in my mind, the, if the government is trying to hide the fact that UFOs are real, they have lost that argument with the public in stunning fashion. Yeah. Know, and they've lost that argument because most of the public believes in UFOs. Um, Absolutely. You know, most of, most of science, most scientists believe that um, alien civilizations likely exist and that, um, and that, and, and I, I would argue that a not small proportion of them also are intrigued by the idea of UFO cases happening on Earth today. You know, um, the UFO community has done 
their best to keep scientists away from their money scheme. Um, but, <laughs> you know, but science is interested, I would argue. And scientists are interested. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know what, it, what benefit it does for the government to keep UFOs a secret, um, especially when UFOs being real would be like an awesome way for the government to gain more power, you know? Um, I've always been very, I don't know, I guess I've always been very uh, pessimistic about that idea that if, if aliens, if aliens weren't real, it's hard not to think that a, that a, an administration like um, the administrations that were around during Vietnam or even, you know, uh, even mo just modern administrations since Vietnam, let's say, it's hard to imagine that any of those administrations would not try to use the UFO threat as a way to bolster um, the military's power. You know, it's, it's, hard, right, not to, it's right. hard to think that they wouldn't do that. So, because they've used every other, they've used every other method to do that. You know what I mean? It's like, right, let's who use, cares let's... about terrorists if they're aliens, right? Like, you, that's so much better for, uh, for Halliburton and also their companies. Yeah, well, there's two sort of lines of thought there. The first is uh, part of me has been concerned that what we're seeing now is that, that uh, mm. the revelations uh, about the government program and everything, the whole, to me, like the word that really makes the hair on my neck stand up is, is threat. It's like that was the government thing, the threat assessment. So, so it's like, and then I, you know, part of the argument from pro-disclosure people is like, we need to know these things are real because they're invading our airspace. It's like, all right, this is, you know, this is worrisome to me. <laughs> like, I don't need, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because the funny part is, there's an old canard in UFO lore. I don't know if you're aware of this. Well, you probably are. You're, you seem pretty old school in a sense. Uh about the lady who worked for Oppenheimer or someone uh, in the some high up uh, famous guy in the in the space program uh, or something along those lines. You'll know what I'm talking about, I think, in a minute. But she was like, first it'll be, first it'll be the Russians, and then it will be terrorists, and then it will be aliens. They have this all planned yeah. out. And it's like, mm -hmm. and she said that, and it was like in the Stephen Greer book that came out like around the turn of the century, and it was like, I, that, that always stuck with me because it's sort of like, ah, that does make sort of sense. They're gonna need, they're gonna need something else to amp this up, and and so part of me when I see all this stuff, oh, there there might be a threat. It's like they could come out tomorrow and go, UFOs are real. We don't know what they are, but they're. You know, but they they they're invading our airspace, and we need to get to the bottom of it, or whatever. And it's like that's no fun. That's <laughs> that's the that's the worst. Yeah. That would be the worst disclosure ever. Um. So 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 uh, yeah, yeah. that would be maddening. And the the other part before I before I turn over the the the, the microphone to you, the other part is I think part of the reason why even if they know what what uh, UFOs are. It's like UFOs make a great fucking cover for all kinds of stuff. So they probably, if they came out and said aliens or UFO, I keep crossing the two, but UFOs were real, it's like they, they might not necessarily be able to use it as much as a cover for others. Maybe they could. I don't know. But it's, it's sort of like for a long time, it, like the Paul Benowitz thing. You know, they, they had them all worked up that it was uh, aliens and stuff, but it was actually some kind of secret 
spy thing they were working on. So it was like, uh, mm-hmm. who knows if they really want to give up that that little hook that they can use to uh, distract people from looking at what is actually a spy plane or something like that. So, uh, like I said, there's, there's, a, there's sort of two two lines of thought. But what do you think of the threat aspect of it? Because that that to me is a little more pressing. Because I mean, that whole thing like a couple weeks ago with the with the Senate, it was like they framed that as a threat too. They were like, we need to we need. Oh, it was Werner von Braun. Thanks, Jim Vujovic in the chat, uh, who told the lady that. But um, but yeah, what do you think of that? That I guess what I was like my concern that the that there might be some kind of angle here with the threat aspect of it all. So I think it's kind of there's there's I think there's the historical. First off, I guess I'd say that I think the history of the history of the military's involvement with UFOs, sort of to me, and especially this group that ends up becoming. Um, ATIP and then to the Stars Academy, um, you know that group. That group grows. It seems it grows. Well, not it seems it grows organically from Bigelow Aerospace, right? Right. And Bigelow right, Aerospace yeah. grows organically from NIDS, and NIDS grows organically from, um, you know, kind of the 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 team um, that both. So Putoff was part of the you know, uh, SRI and then those sorts of, you know, research into remote viewing and, um, you know, uh, yeah, Elon Hubbard stuff lineage, and whatever, a lot of the same right? all that uh, stuff. Populate this, this story. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So all of those kinds of things. And then you have John Alexander and Stubble Bean, um, and those other people working on kind of the idea of the militarized psychics and, um, using sort of these, unknowns and these really uh, extreme parts of human experience to uh, help in the fight against um, the enemies of America, right? Those two groups kind of come together and become, you know, with Bigelow, um, the core of the NIDS team, and then, you know, so I, I guess from that perspective, it seems to me that they're, they've always tried to push the idea that this is something that the government should be taking seriously, right? But yeah. I'm not sure the government ever really has. <laughs> you know, that's the first thing I guess I'd say is um, I think I, I would argue that it's likely at least, or it seems likely to me, or it seems to make sense to me at least, that this is maybe something that the government did really care about in the 50s and 40s and, you know, uh, even to the 60s, maybe, and thought there was real threat here. Um, but the longer that stuff, we don't we don't know if anything, we don't know if any communication exi- has existed or whatever, right? But to me, yeah. from the outside at least, assuming no communication occurred between the government or the military or whatever and some alien species, to me it kind of makes sense that if you keep seeing something maybe happening but nothing ever kind of results from it, pragmatically, you kind of just put it to the side, don't you? You know, it yeah, kind of reminds exactly. me of, um, it reminds me like, you know, um, I'm, I'm like really into trashy television shows, so I love that show, Dr. Bimple Popper. And oh, boy, she, yeah. You know, there, <laughs> there are episodes, there's episodes where there's like, you know, a dude walks in and he's got like a 15-pound 
mass on the side of his face. And she's like, well, how did it start? And he's like, well, it started like a pimple. And then, you know, 10 years go by and now it's ginormous. You know, <laughs> it, it kind of feels that way with the government in some cases. Like, um, this is something that is concerning in the minutia, right? Like, like it, it's a concerning when it happens. And they probably investigate every single case because maybe it's an enemy aircraft or it's Russia, it's China, it's whatever. But I think at the end of the day, they're probably like, listen, we're getting maybe a dozen of these reports a year. Who gives a shit? You know what I mean? Like, whatever, dude. We're fighting terrorists. We're fighting other stuff, right? Um, and I think that I, – I do think that what ATIP has been successful in, at least it seems to me, is making it clear to the public or trying to push the narrative to the public that these things are a potential threat, right? This isn't something that we can just ignore, um, right. Because whatever, you only get a couple cases a year, right? So I, I do think there's something to the idea, like you're saying, that a threat narrative is being pushed. I also think, frankly, that puts butts in the seats. You know what I mean? Yeah, no one, yeah. no one is going to watch a TV show if a guy gets on the, you know, a guy gets on the, um, the commercial and is like, you know, aliens are in the sky. Who cares? You know what I mean? Like, right, right. You know, yeah, yeah. Nothing for us. Like, you know, it's that is hard to sell. And I think people do care because I think, frankly, a lot of people think, you know, this is this is completely separated from people thinking that they've had experiences with these things, which is concerning and worth investigating and everything else, of course, right? But so I don't know. I mean, I, it's hard to gauge if the government takes this seriously or not in any way. Um, certainly, Harry Reid took it seriously, right? And he was able to earmark some funding with some of his, um, you know, fellow senators um, to help something like this get forward and get approved for funding. Um, so that, it seems clear that he cares or he cared. And so some aspects of the military also clearly cared because there were these kinds of programs going on. Um, yeah. but I think it's kind of hard to tell. Part of me wonders like with the, like with the intelligence threats that, we're coming in about like Osama bin Laden, right? Right, that right. The military kind of – they knew this guy was maybe a threat. They knew that there was some rumblings going on. They knew that something was going to happen. But again, it's kind of one of those things where it's, it's like you leave well enough alone, right? If it's not, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And then yeah. once it breaks, once it happens, then you start kicking that in overdrive, right? Then you really care. I kind right, of wonder right. if UFOs isn't that same way. Right and me and and listen, man. Maybe the Nimitz encounter, maybe um, the Navy encounters were that thing that kicked the military in a high gear and or the government in a gear and saying like, oh crap, this like really does need to be worried about. Um, or maybe another event was that. Maybe Roswell was that. Right. Um, yeah. It's just hard, dude. It's there's like again, there's no answers, right? We're just we're just making up a science fiction mythos right now together. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No well, it's funny too. It's funny because, like, I mean, I guess there's, I guess you can kind of like, I guess, uh, give a pass to like people who were like looking at documents and stuff like that. But I think, too, a lot of we we talked about the guy who goes out into the field and photographs the tree line and stuff. But it's like when you really, I mean, if we're really gonna like be honorable to language and everything, it's like there's really not that many UFO researchers anymore. It's like they're really like. UFO reactors, they're just reacting to what whatever the latest thing that happens with this saga is. 
um, which is an interesting sort of development for the world of UFO research because it's like no, no one's really – I mean, I guess what you guys are talking about doing with this app is that's research. Um, but a lot of folks, they're, they're not – this, this is going to sound like I'm being dismissive or a dick, and I apologize. It's not how I mean it. But it's like they're not necessarily ufologists. They're like TTSAologists, or they're sort of following this this soap opera that that really is just sort of, sort of like tangentially about UFOs at this point. It's 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 yeah. an interesting it's an interesting sort of development of where this all has gone. Well, it, it kind of actually it's interesting. It reminds me, I think, of what is happening to new. Generally, um, you know, I the the news like the the normal like the you know, okay yeah uh, CNN Fox MSNBC yeah, you those news channels right yeah oh sorry yeah. sorry no the, the news right. I mean um you know there are some nights where you can you can have on your favorite news channel for three hours at night and you will not hear any news right like you know yeah I, yeah I, 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 I haven't learned a thing three hours right I'm like what the hell what have I what have I been doing um, and I think the reason or part of that reason is that a lot of what we consider to be kind of news or reporting on the news has shifted from just a pure reporting of, um, facts and stories and more opining or giving opinion on, um, what those stories mean. So like, for example, um, the people who are looking at say the Wilson documents, Right, which is the new hullabaloo in the UFO world, and the mm-hmm. new old hullabaloo in the UFO world. Um, those, you know, a lot of those people are really arguing that these documents are are completely genuine, right? And that's like that's been their real big push that these are genuine, they're real. You should read yeah, them. Especially in the last few weeks, they seem to think. Couple weeks, right? Yeah, for the folks who aren't as tuned in, like, uh, I actually said this to you. I thought that you, there's a lot of rumbling about some big, another big New York Times article, so we'll see. I, I, uh, now now I'm hearing that it's going to be next week, but it's it's very oh, sort of – Yeah, yeah. I uh, When I was setting up the interview with you, I thought maybe it would be out by now, only because I'm of, of the – one theory I have, I guess, is that a lot of this is all connected to the TV show, and so it's like, oh, well, they want it to come out when the TV show comes out, so maybe it'll be mm-hmm. out this week, but it never did. So it's all very it's all very weird. But, yeah, for, for histor- historical purposes and, and for people wondering kind of what – yeah, there's a lot of, like, scuttlebutt that, that there's going to be a big – a big, uh, you know, December 2017-esque article for the, that's going to push the ball down the field again. But uh, we'll see. We'll see what that happens. And there's sort of, that has, but. and there's sort of, there's sort of three, there's sort of three major flavors to this story too that's supposedly happening. The first is that it is a story all about crash retrievals of UFOs. Right. Right. Yeah. This the second option is that it's all about these Wilson documents that supposedly are between. Um, Dr. Eric Davis, who is a uh, member of Earth Tech International, which is for Hal Pudoff and is a big Bigelow player and everything else, um, him and this Admiral uh, Wilson, who was uh, the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, I want to say. I don't have his stuff in front of me, but he was a big player yeah. during uh, the Bush years. And um, 
supposedly met with – this is like a recording of Davis's meeting with him that Davis wrote supposedly after the fact as a, as a recording of that meeting for his fellow members of Big, Bigelow Aerospace. Yeah. Um, and supposedly these come from the estate of Edgar Mitchell, and the source who is leaking them to these people who are researchers is supposedly uh, you know, a very high-quality source or whatever. Um, but anyways – the documents themselves, so that's another case of this New York Times article that there's about the Wilson documents themselves. And then the third one is that, yeah, they're about um, another kind of like UFO case that's going to be covered on, on Unidentified Season 2, right? Um, right. If we, if we even look at those Wilson documents, though, people, the people that are reporting this, they are – not reporting that these documents are interesting, looking at the facts in either case, whatever. They're just coming out and saying, like, these are real. You have to believe them because my source says they're real, right? And yeah, that's not true I've of all a lot of that, to yeah. be fair, right? That's not true yeah. of all of them. And, and frankly, actually, in, as part of all that other stuff they're doing, um, they actually have generated there's – there's actually a really good website that I was really um, – I was very impressed by that puts together – all of the related documents and interviews and stuff that seem to hint at the Wilson documents existing pre their publication um, this last year. So yeah. they, they actually have done some really good investigation and, and um, just kind of like bare bones reporting, right? There's no opinion on that page. It just says, these are the documents. This is all that relates to it, whatever. Right. So that is, I think a step in the right direction. Um, but no, man, it's, it's true. I would argue like you're saying, the, the people that are really loud and really popular are not are not researchers. I would argue I'm not even necessarily a researcher either, right? I am um, – I, I guess I'm more of a critic or a skeptic or – skeptic is – critic is the wrong word, I guess. I'm more of a – I'm an interested skeptic, and I do investigate, but it's um, – I don't investigate cases, right? I'm not going out yes. in the field and talking to individuals, right? So I'm not a UFO yes. researcher. I am a, I don't know. I'm a jerk, I guess. <laughs> Go on. You can be an. I, I just call myself an observer. I just observe all this, so it's kind yeah, of that's you know, the it's, safest it's place a to commentator. be. Commentator, like I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to kind yeah. of put a label on what is happening. Um, but you know, I think that there is a lot of. I don't know. I think the field. You know the, the other part of the problem here with this though is there are really good people just kind of doing reporting. You know, MJ yeah. Benias, um, you know, uh, Tim McMillan, um, Keith, uh, Keith Pasterfeld, who is a really good blog. That's great. Jack Brewer, um, Jason Colavito does a good blog on this stuff. You know, there are people who are doing really kind of quality reporting on this and analysis and everything else. Um, but because they are – they tend to be, I think, a little bit more agnostic towards To The Stars Academy. At, you know, at best, they're agnostic, and at worst, they're at, you know, actively critical because they think something is weird or doesn't make yeah, sense yeah. or whatever. Because of that, they, they do tend to get attacked. <laughs> yeah, it's very so, – yeah. It's very unfortunate. Yeah. It's like uh, – mm. yeah. I, 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 yeah, I advocate on the show for like at least some – a lot of these guys are just looking for like to verify stories. So it's like, so if somebody has a story and they try to verify it, it's all of a sudden it's like, oh, you're you're a jerk for for trying to ruin the party. It's like, no, dude, you, he's mm -hmm. just trying to make sure that what we're being told is true. 
you know that's that's all mm-hmm. if you can verify it that's that's preferable we need we need yeah otherwise we're building building like these we have a lousy foundation or something so yeah well I mean, yeah, it'll I think, be interesting I think to see for, where it goes good i think for a long time people felt that all of this stuff you know one of the common refrains i got when i used to i'll never forget when i was like you know in high school and i would argue um you know, I'd be on like, you know, the old the old internet, right? Like back in the day, arguing people yeah, yeah. on paranormal forums. You know, that Slenderman thing is fake. You know what I mean? Like all that kind of stuff, right? Um, I'll never forget. Uh, you know, I I'll never forget just telling. You know, my mom was like, "Well, why do you do that? You know, you get so annoyed and whether all this other stuff." And I was like, "Well, I think, you know, like I don't know. I, I kind of felt like there was something like you can't just lying is wrong." <laughs> I mean, right, right, right. Lying is wrong. I don't know. It sounds like stupid and um, naive and whatever, but like, I don't think it's I don't think it's harmless to just lie to somebody. You know, I don't think it's ever harmless to lie to somebody. And for a lot of people who believe in this stuff, I think their argument, I think deep down the argument they make would be is, even if I believe in, even if people believe in this stuff and it's not true, it's not hurting anybody. You know, but that's not true. It is hurting people. Um, people who are having these really uh, terrible experiences, these frightening experiences at night that they can't explain, are yeah, yeah. You know, coming to conferences and, and sobbing at the mic, saying, you know, I was so anxious and everything else, and then I found out that I've been abducted by aliens and it's just gotten worse and oh yeah, everything else. Um, or, you know, they undergo hypnosis in somebody's basement because someone took a, a course online that makes them a, a hypnotist. Um, and it, you know, it it ruins them. It, it, it It's not good. Yeah, right? I saw so, something the other day that uh, – I actually saw it from a couple of places, but people were like, uh, are any other experiencers, uh, you know, having – Oh, God. I don't even know. Sort of yeah, I saw odd, that. odd feelings or something like that. And it was like, oh, other people were like chiming in and shit. And it was like, you, you know, and some of the stuff they were saying was a little bit like, you need to see a fucking doctor, dude. You don't need to, you know, this isn't the aliens trying to communicate with you. Like, you're, you know, you're having a manic episode they're or pre- whatever. Or or, or yeah, your blood no. sugar's all fucked up or whatever. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, the, the, yeah, the, 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 thread, the thread I saw was, are any other experiencers feeling really down and anxious right now? A lot of experiencers are reporting this. And in my head, I'm like, there's a pandemic on. Everyone is sad and anxious. You know what I mean? You can't yeah, go to the exactly. store without a face mask on. Like, everyone is anxious. Everyone is sad right now. Like you said, it's, it's not the aliens, right? It's the world sucks right now. It's the real world doing that to you. Um, yeah. You know, there are um, – so to argue that to argue that this stuff is – you know, to and to outside of even like the ramifications on our society, on our politics, on our healthcare, on on any of the things of people believing in misinformation, um, you know, just the people that are experiencers themselves, they are being harmed by charlatans. People are taking their money and lying to them, and they are not getting treatment. They're not getting answers. They're not getting help. They're not right. You know, any of those other things. And again, I guess you can make the argument, well, is it – are they being hurt? And I'd, I would argue, yes, they are. Even, you know, when my dad uh, – again, another story I was just telling someone the other day. 
when my dad my dad passed away when I was in high school. Um, actually, right when I graduated, yeah. right or when I was in high school, I guess. But when I was in high school, he got sent into a nursing home for or an assisted living facility for end of life management. Um, and he died when I was in college, my sophomore year. Like hospice, yeah. yeah. But before that, he was really sick, obviously. And um, he got really into this idea that so there's a guy on Staten Island where I grew up who is notorious for selling. Um, this water that is sold in these little Virgin Mary water bottles that he claims is from a Virgin Mary statue in Lord's France that, that cries these tears of water. Yeah, I've heard of that guy kind claims, of stuff. You know, yeah, yeah. This guy claims, you know, they'll hear you cancer, they'll help you get better, yada, yada, whatever, right? And mm-hmm. uh, my dad bought a, just a buttload of this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, I, I bet if I went to my mom's house and looked in the basement, I'd probably find, like, five of these bottles. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's how many of these stupid things we bought, right? Yeah. Um, and they didn't – I mean, my dad still went to – my dad still got treatment for his cancer, right? I mean, it didn't, it didn't work ultimately, but he did get treatment. Um, he still tried medicine. But, you know, so I think a lot of people would say, well, that didn't hurt him then in any way, right? But he spent money on it, right? He – it just it's not I don't think it's ethical to do things like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? To take yeah, yeah, that, and profit off of the false hope of somebody who is going through something serious. Um and I'd argue that UFO experiencers are going through something serious. I don't know what it is, but they're really affected by this. And so to let them be preyed upon by charlatans, I don't I don't think is ethically right. I don't feel good about it. Yeah, and there might even be a medical aspect of it, too, in a sense where it's like uh, in, when you're sick like that, or when you're sick, I mean, I don't know specifically what, what was going on with your dad, but I remember my dad died of cancer, so I can kind of understand a little bit. So it's like, uh, you know, when you, like if you try some of that stuff and then it doesn't work out, you, you know, you go to the doctor and they're like, no, the cancer's spreading or whatever, it's like, I think maybe that might not necessarily be good for someone's uh, definitely for their spirits, if you will. You know, it's like at that point they may mm-hmm. they may be like, oh shit! If the fucking miracle cure can't do anything, then it's oh, then it's over. <laughs> you know, so right, it, right, it, it yeah. could harm people yeah, in that way too. Absolutely, it can, and it just you know, again, it's like it's one of those silly things where you know, if you ask some. It feels like that uh, that meme that's online sometimes where it's Patrick from SpongeBob, you know, and it's like, well, yeah. so this is this is immoral. It's like, right. It's like, so it's not okay to lie to somebody. Right. So if I lied to you about, like, a cure for a disease, you'd be mad at me because I'd be doing you wrong. Right. Yeah. What if I lied yeah. to you about an alien? Oh, well, then that's just fun. Whoa, wait, wait, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> what? what? This is not fun. I'm still, I'm, you know, I'm still doing, you know, if, if I don't know. It's like this yeah. idea that it's just flipping money. It doesn't matter because it's not real in the first place, and these people are all silly, and it's just a crappy way of looking at things, man. Now, we're going to hit the wall. Can I grab? Can I hold on to you for a little while longer, or are you, you going to hard out here? Um, yeah, a little bit while like longer. Five, fine. five, ten minutes. Five, ten minutes. Don't yeah, worry absolutely. About it. Just, uh, all right. I want to ask you about one thing that I want. It's a completely off the off topic, but in a sense it's kind of uh, – it, it's kind of like it, it's it, it's within the realm. You're like the only person I could ask. 
<laughs> so, um, but but let me thank the we're gonna hit the wall on the live show. Chris Pinio, Jason Brody, Jim Vujovic, Zach Copley. Thanks for joining us in the chat. Uh, thanks to all the folks who uh, have been listening live. I know Jack Brewer has been tuned in uh, tonight. He uh, sent me a couple of messages on uh, on Twitter. So thanks to everybody listening. Uh, grab the MP3 for uh, you know like ten minutes more of uh, of chat here with Chris Cogswell. Now let's uh, the I guess we'll do the we'll do the question all that I could ask you, um, which is <laughs> I I remember hearing this idea kicked around. Um, uh, all right, this is a two. <laughs> all right, this is a two-part question in a sense. So I remember this idea being right. kicked around of a space elevator that was going to be uh, like a tether, a na- made of nano, tech, you know, made of nano materials uh, that would be super, super strong, and they could use it to like launch people up into space. And that was like this was. I heard this pro at least ten years ago, probably fifteen years ago. Um, that this was like that they, they, they were working on this. That's the other part of this UFO disclosure shit that gets on my nerves sometimes. Where it's like I'm 40 now. I got into this when I was like in my mid 20s. Uh, this is a this is a slow moving process. I don't know if I'm gonna even make it to whenever that happens. But that that's tied into the whole idea of this tether going up into space and the that story that idea was always sort of couched in these long-form interviews, um, like back in the old RFL days and coast-to-coast, with nanotechnology experts, and they were always like, this is going to change the world, this is the next big thing that's, uh, you know, this this is it. This is like really exciting technology. But I personally don't ever, uh, maybe, maybe I do, maybe this is, maybe, maybe you can enlighten me, but it's like, I don't, Am I seeing nanotechnology where I go out? Is, is it something that's out there that I don't even know about, or is it still something that they're still messing around with? Because I, I, I haven't seen it transform the world yet, unless uh, I don't even know about it, because it's too small. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what is – so that's the two – yeah, that's the two-part question. The, the tether, have you heard about this tether idea, and would it even work and, and be – What's what? What is the deal? What's the deal with uh, nanotechnology? Because I've heard so much about it over the years, but again, uh, I, I don't see it as far as I can tell. So okay, so for your first part of your question, I actually I remember those interviews too. Um, yeah. Funnily enough, um, I yeah, dude, that that I don't know whatever happened to the space tether. Actually, it's really I'm I'm wondering if maybe my I'm actually thinking if I'm going to pitch that to my podcast crew tomorrow and be like, we should do an episode on the space tether. Cause I, I hadn't thought of it until you mentioned it, but it, it did fall off. Didn't it? I think the idea, so the idea initially was, I think there were two general parts of the idea. The first idea was something like when we developed, um, transit, transatlantic electron, like electrical cables and communication cables. Right. Yeah. Like the first time that you could uh, do a telegraph across the English Channel, right, was a huge deal um, because it was the first time that you could transport information essentially at the speed of um, light, right, the speed of transmission of a, of, of electricity through um, a wire. Part of the mm-hmm. space tether idea was that same kind of thing, that it would be 
that it would be something like a transmission of information, I believe. Mm-hmm. Now, I might be misremembering, but what was the big invention that got rid of that from being a thing? Wireless communication, right? Cell phones, right. Uh, Wi-Fi, um, you know, satellite internet and stuff like that. So, Well, the other part of it was they were going to put an elevator on it, and, like, that would be the, that would right. be the so that's, uh, so that's, I guess, like, space elevator was sort of the idea. That's the other part of it. The space elevator, the space elevator idea. I think the idea to that would be something like. Um, I, honestly, I don't know enough about it to say either way on the space elevator yeah. part. What I would imagine, though, the idea, the reason that they were probably talking about using nanomaterial for doing that is um, one of the most common applications of nanomaterials, and this answers your second question a little bit. One of the most common applications of nanomaterials in your daily life is in the creation of materials that are very, very strong and sturdy out of relatively common materials. Okay. So a space, a, the cord or the material that would connect a space elevator to the Earth, let's say, um, normally that would have to be very, um, very heavy, right? The material would have to be really heavy, and it would be so heavy that it would, it would probably crash on itself. Like there would be no way to chain it or get it to stick to the ground um, sturd- in, a, in a way that's sturdy enough that it would be safe or, or practical to do it. With yeah. the promise of nanomaterials, the assumption I'm, I'm imagining would be that they are so light but still so strong that you could make a very, very small amount of material um, hold up a lot of weight so you could do something like a space elevator. You know, but yeah. but again, though, you know what, man? I'm gonna look into it, and I will get you a better answer on that space elevator. Yeah, um, it's a it's an old it's an old it's, uh, con- it's another old canard that I've heard about forever. So it's like it's a little no, like it's, a flying it's, car, it's, it's like a modern version of the flying car. But yeah, so nanotechnology. Really so, okay, so nanotechnology has been so science goes through these periods where there are buzzwords, and for a long mm-hmm. time. The buzzword in science was quantum. Today, the buzzword is nano. In an, in in the next generation, and even somewhat today, the the new um, buzzword is machine learning and and AI and artificial intelligence and stuff like that. You do see nanotechnology every single day. Um, I am talking to you on a device that uses nanotechnology now. Um, the ability to generate or create. Um, electronic components that are able to store as much data and power and, and be able to run such um, run the kind of processes and, and have the kind of power and memory and computing capabilities that are required of like cell phones. All of that is only possible because of the development of uh, microchip uh, fabrication technology and, and, and methods that come from the study of nanomaterials and even sometimes include nanomaterials themselves. Yeah. Um, the next one is that you've probably been using an nanomaterial your entire life without realizing it in the form of clays. So clay, the reason clay is so uh, movable is because it is a, uh, it's a nanomaterial. It's, it's, it's nano-sized sheets of solid that have water sandwiched between them. Um, huh. So clays are a nanomaterial, but... In terms of kind of like the science or the technology of nanomaterials or nanotechnology, um, some of the places that you're seeing them but maybe not realizing, like I said, electronic components is a big one. 
Another one is in um, absorbance and uh, materials that are used for things like filters, right? So like N95 masks, um, mm-hmm. a lot of those are – a lot of those filters and, and absorbance are as powerful as they are or as effective because they contain nano uh, nanomaterials within them. They're relatively simple, but they are nanomaterials. Um, so really, nanomaterial – but that's, that's the other problem with this answer, I guess, is that nanomaterials are such a broad range of um, – there's such a broad range of materials because nano, nano is like – you know how like there's a meter, then there's a centimeter, and then like a millimeter, right? And nano, right, right. Nano is just, nano is just a, 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 a type of size. It, it, nano is a nanometer. Um, so it's gotcha. just engineering materials that have features at that nano scale. Um, yeah. So you're you are already seeing them every day. You just probably aren't realizing them because they're leading. They're they're not doing the things that we said they do. When when they were being talked about, people were talking about things like nano robots or nano machines or, or things like that, right? Or space elevator, right? And the applications for them are the real applications of those sorts of technologies are a lot more. Um, a lot more like every day, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's kind yeah, of no, like I, I get, um, I, I get that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's like it's like, it's like, na- it's like it, did trans- it did transform the world, but it, in a way that it, like it just made it easier and to, to make better stuff that we already have. In a right, sense. right. It's it's like NASA developing Velcro, right? It's like right, right. You know, or whatever, right? It's like oh, cool. We you know we needed this to make spacesuits, but now it's on my. You know, weird. Uh, you know, it's on my weird uncle's shoes, right? Like it's, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, it really <laughs> transformed the world. Um, the other, but but what I will say though is, one area that nanotechnology is likely going to drastically change the world um, in our in our lifetime. One of them is in um, the fight against climate change. I would argue. That's actually the kind of research that I primarily focused on, or the application for the materials I made was capturing yeah. carbon dioxide and other pollutants from the air. Um, nanomaterials are able to capture more CO2 than any other material out there, um, and they can be reused. So they're like uh, they're like sponges, right? You soak up the stuff, and then you can get rid of that stuff and soak up more. So yeah. um, that's one area that they'll probably, I hope, change the world. The other way that I think is a lot closer to completion or a lot closer to the potential of it actually happening is in medicine. Um, so creating, um, creating particles of material that can target um, the delivery of drugs to like a cancer tumor or um, a hemorrhage or a blood clot or um, a, a vein or something that's damaged, yeah. right? All of that kind of stuff, it's those sorts of problems or, or products, I guess, those sorts of solutions are going through um, clinical trials now. And so I would argue that it's it's likely that at least a couple of them will probably make their way to the market. Um, so, you know, and that's, that's, a, that's one of the things, though, too, I guess I'll say in this very long-winded um, final answer, um, or I don't know if it's the final answer, but in the long-winded answer um, – Technology, like the time it takes for a technology to get deployed from the time that it's 
talked about in a research paper until it finally yeah. ends up getting published in a scientific in a, in a or from the time it goes from a scientific journal to actually getting into the market. It depends on the field, but that's usually like at least ten years. Like ten years is like really quick for science to move yeah. its way through the academic process and regulations and everything else. So with something like nanotechnology, where when we were talking about it, we like had just, we've been, we've been working on nanomaterials since the 1950s. And we had, we didn't know they were nanomaterials then because we couldn't measure that, but we've been, we've at least known how to engineer clays um, and other thin films since about the 1950s, 1960s. We only nice. really started to know anything about their physical nature and how to engineer them in a really efficient way starting in like the 1980s. Um, and our ability to understand them is limited by our ability to test, like probe their physical features. So, and that's kind of been about the same since, that's been about the same since like the 1990s, 2000s. Um, and there are advances that happen. The techniques get better, they get cheaper, they get faster, they get, you know, um, more efficient. Um, but, you know, in terms of the tests we do, those tests haven't really changed. So I think it'll be um, – so th there's just a lot to unpack, I guess, in that answer. But the, Yeah, no, you know, I mean, I don't want – yeah, I, you, you I, did good. This is, this, <laughs> this is the point – no, like yeah. this, this is the point – this is the point, though, where – I would argue some of those technologies are starting to actually like ripen into um, solutions. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think we are starting to see them actually deployed, and I think we'll keep seeing them in our lifetimes for sure. All right. Uh, now, before I let you go, now. what's that? <laughs> Probably not nano no robots. robots? <laughs> All right. I'm invested in the space. Luckily, I'm not invested. Uh, luckily, I'm not invested in the space elevator, but I'm I'm, I'm emotionally invested <laughs> in the space elevator. Um, well, I'll go, I'm going to let you go on this two-part sort of plug question here. Uh, talk about the podcast. Uh, I'm going to be honest; I haven't had a chance to listen to too many episodes yet. Um, I, I checked out a couple when I knew we were going to be doing the show, um, but I really haven't had a chance to dig into it. I'm not a big podcast listener because I have my own show and I work in the paranormal, sure, yeah. so it's like, you know, I, I want to watch wrestling. I don't want to uh, watch, uh, I don't want to watch Unidentified, so I, I watch wrestling. Yeah. Um, so, but, but looking through, I'm definitely going to dig into your show because looking through, there's a lot of, what I like about it, just based on what I'm seeing here, is there's a lot of stuff in here um, it reminds me in a way of Banal of America because it's, it's all over the map. I really like this. It's uh, I'm looking here. You got episodes on Morgellons. You got a flat Earth episode. I'm a huge. I'm a fan of the flat Earth. I'm not a flat Earther, but I'm a I'm a big flat Earth <laughs> fan. So I'm I'm going to be listening to that one probably tomorrow. But uh, you know, uh, water fluoridation, uh, marijuana mist, the Unabomber. I'm a <laughs> I'm also a big fan of the Unabomber. So not not what he did, but as a character, I find the Unabomber just absolutely fascinating. Oh, so the Unabomber, I, the Unabomber was a hell of a series, man. It was a lot of fun. It was so much work. I'm gonna I'm gonna dig into that one definitely. So I guess talk a little bit about the podcast. Folks can find it at themadscientistpodcast.com. dot com. Um, you know what what is, what is it? What, what's what's it like? What's uh you know? Tell us why, why should people check it out? I'm I'm already invested in looking into it because I want to hear these episodes. You're covering a lot of topics that I really love. Like I said, I could 
I feel like six months to a year from now, we, we may be doing another interview where we get into all that stuff that I just <laughs> I just listed. Oh, we got to do it, man. Um, no, please. I would love to come back on any time. Um, yeah, dude, so the pod, so the podcast sort of answers, like, at the very beginning of this, I talked about that underlying question of all my research and my interest in this, which is, why do people believe weird things? And is there any reality to the to those weird stories or those weird uh, sciences that people talk about? That's really what the podcast tries to answer. Um, you know, so we cover, uh, we're, we're a comedy podcast. It's me and my co-host, Marie Mayhew. Um, we cover sort of the history, philosophy, and really hard science um, behind either a historical scientific topic of interest or a story in like the history of pseudoscience, fringe science, ufology, Bigfoot, uh, Loch Ness Monster, Dracula, all that, all that kind of stuff, right? And we don't just yeah. limit it to – we try not to limit it to um, paranormal topics always. We do things like you said, like the Unabomber. Um, yeah. We did stuff on myths surrounding like the history of surgery um, and what that process of development actually was like. Um, we're doing a series, um, actually we're just about to start a series on time travel and, um, the kind of historical and philosophical development of that into an actual kind of scientific topic. So we try to give really good evidence. We try to give really good information, but also do it in kind of a fun way and tell you the weird stories that, you know, you might not know about from science. Um, and hopefully in the process, you'll walk away at least a little bit more knowledgeable for your next trivia night on uh, science topics. Interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, like I said, uh, I'm, I'm really interested and I, I really like what you're doing there. Cause uh, I was saying to somebody else the other day, cause of what I do, uh, as folks know, I write for coast to coast on their news editor. So I'm in, in, I'm in the thick of it with the paranormal, like every day. Um, so I'm like, for lack of a better, for the serious lack of a better term, I'm like a paranormal junkie in a way, where I need, I need like a, I need like weirder and weirder fixes at this point. So to me, it's like, all right, give me, give me. I was going to suggest, have you done a spontaneous human combustion episode yet? We did, and we we did uh, it. Um, the nice. human candle is our. Uh, the the human candle was going to be the name of the episode, but then. We had to do spontaneous human combustion, but dude, spontaneous, spontaneous human combustion is gross. It's very fun, very fun episode. <laughs> yeah, so like that's that's kind of so I'm I'm really looking forward to grabbing this show because because uh, you you go into a lot of realms that I'm interested in that are way beyond sort of the paranormal. So one of my most memorable shows we did a whole episode on Banal America just uh, on Rumspringa, which is when uh, t- teenage. Oh, nice. Teenage Amish kids can leave the Amish and go be uh, English, as they call it, kids. Uh-huh. And it was, like, so off the beaten path of that. It's so beyond paranormal, but it was like, this is interesting. This is fun. That's the fun of having a podcast, that you can kind of do whatever you want on it. So, yeah, uh, folks can check it out at the themadscientistpodcast.com. Now, I'll give you the question. Fortunately, no one asks me this anymore. I, I shouldn't say fortunately, but no one, no one asks me this. But I imagine you may get it a lot. And it's, uh, why haven't you written a book yet? So have you have you thought about writing a book or or anything like that? <laughs> so uh, yeah, I've I have toyed with the idea a lot. Um, the you know if I was going to write a book, the book would be probably about sort of the kind of like the philosophy or I guess the development of 
the UFO topic into the modern day and about those kind of the competing mythos that exist, right? So, you know, you have the military, um, the militarist or militarism side where people think these are threats. We need to fight them. We need to know how to contain them, whatever. You have the side of the, the world of UFOs where people think they are, you know, benevolent space brothers, right? They're here to get groovy right. with us and give us technology and help heal our wounds. Um, and then you have, you kind of have, a, you know, a bunch of other smaller groups. And then in the middle are these people who have these real experiences and kind of don't know what to do with them, right? So um, I'd love to look at the development of that and kind of track it over time. Um, the challenge is, you know, like any other um, kind of young person in this field, I got a, I got a day job, right? Right. <laughs> so that takes a lot of work. And, you know, so uh, I don't know, man, maybe someday if there's enough interest in it, I would I would think about writing one or whatever. But, um, you know, you've heard my answers on this. It would take a hell of a copy editor. So I don't know. I've got to start the copy <laughs> editor <go>. fund. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's uh... – yeah, it's funny. It's just yeah, everybody has a book. It's so crazy. So I, I like I said, I used to get that all the time where it's like, Why don't you write a book? It's like why the fuck would I <laughs> why would I want to do a, you know, a man, crazy thing what, like that? Like, that's well that's the thing. That's the thing, right? It's like it's one of those things where I feel like the I feel like those ideas already are part of the podcast, right? Like everything I put in a book are on the podcast. Right, right. But for some reason in my brain it's like you're not a real you're not really part of this until you have a book. You know what I mean? Like until I can have yeah, my own yes. book at a conference, it's like you're not a real, you know, you're not, you haven't really done it yet, man. So I don't know. We'll see what I, happens. I do. It's, I, yeah, I have, wait, I have like, I, I get that. I have that thought sometimes too. And I've had, I've had someone say to me actually, well, now you, now you just got to write a book, so you'll be, you know, you'll be established. It's like fucking established, dude. I've worked for, tw- I've been in this field for twenty years. I work for the fucking, we're the biggest paranormal radio show in the world. I think I'm, <laughs> I think I'm doing all right. Not sure how much Thanks. more, esta- right? Not sure how much more established you can become. But uh, you and know, to me, it's like know, why, like like you said, once you once you write a, it's like once you write a book, then you're in, then you're in this thing. <laughs> to me, it's like, well, if I never write a paranormal book, I was never in the paranormal. So, <laughs> so, you know. I have plausible deniability. There we go, right? Yeah, they can't they can't tie me to it. I'm not that Tim. <laughs> oh man. All right, brother. Well, I appreciate you giving me the extra time. Uh I think folks will enjoy this last part uh quite a bit. Uh once again the the podcast is I, I, the Mad Scientists dot com. Chris, I can't thank you enough. Uh what folks don't know is Chris just moved to uh to the Bay State, Massachusetts. He actually lives like ten minutes from me, which would be so awesome if there wasn't a global pandemic. So at some point, <laughs> if they ever if they ever develop a vaccine or something, even though it's safe, I still am like, I haven't even gone out to eat at a restaurant. So it's like the idea of you and me meeting up for a beer is like, that's way, that's a, that's a 2021 project at this point. But hopefully <laughs> when things get normalized, uh, you and I can meet up and have a beer, and what would be cool, we should talk about this off the air for 2021. Not, I would never want to do a conference or anything like that, but I, I always thought it would be cool to, like, do some kind of, like, monthly speaker series around here or something like that, or, or at least some kind of, like, maybe form some kind of, uh, you know, meeting of, of the minds or something like that among different people. Oh, who 100%, are, man. 
brewer in the area. So that would be yeah, no, uh, pretty cool I, oh, since I'd you be, live I'm, so close. I'm so down. I'm absolutely down. Yeah, man. Let listen. Yeah. We're we're all gonna you know we'll all wear our masks and hope that this thing dies down. And 2021, we are 100% doing that. Yeah, I think it would be a lot of fun. All right, brother. Well, I'll let you get going for the night. Thank you very much. I love the conversation, man, and uh, I'll see you in the Twitterverse. Thank you. Yeah, for sure, man. Talk to you later. Have a good night. You too. Bye. There you go, folks. That was Chris Cogswell of the Mad Scientist podcast. Uh, as I said, it really looks like a, like a feast, a feast of strange and unusual that I'm really looking forward to uh, diving into. Uh, as I mentioned, I'll give an update for folks actually here. I probably, I tend to ramble here at the end of these shows, but, uh, an update from the Tenny episode. So I have continued my regimen of walking and I did walk to, uh, cemetery like two weeks ago, actually. Uh, and I didn't have any interesting, it was in the daytime and I did not have any interesting experiences. So, uh, I should, you know, I, I should probably, you can't just do it once and be like, oh, well, nothing happened. It doesn't work. So I'll, I'll, I'll put the cemetery back in the rotation and, uh, uh, of destinations here for my walking, and I'll check it out. And um, what reminded me of that is that I finally got some of those air, air pods, or what are they called here? Air, air, air pods. That was kind of weird. So I ended up getting disconnected at the end of uh, the show there on Friday night. So uh, it was very weird. I didn't know what was going on, and I kept talking, and all of a sudden the dial tone came up, and uh, it was very weird. I don't want to blame it on the ghosts of the uh, cemetery, but who knows, because that's when when it happened when I finished talking about uh, that experience, which wasn't even an experience in the first place. So who knows? Maybe it was a message. Um. But with that in mind, here I am. It's actually Monday morning. I'm taping this uh, now, this little back-end part, to uh, paste on the end of uh, the show because I have, like, OCD, and I don't want to end the show with just this weird cutout. Uh, people wondering, what the hell what the hell was that? What just happened? I don't know. This is, like, the weirdest blog talk thing ever. I'm, it's not even going to be on blog talk, but I needed some method of uh, recording it. So with that in mind... Thanks to all the folks in the chat room. Thanks to the folks who listened live. And uh, let's plug this week's show. It would be next week's, but uh, like I said, it's actually Monday morning right now uh, where I'm taping this. Friday, July 17th at 9 p.m., we're going to have Justin Bamforth on the program. He is uh, behind the website normalparanormal.org. I had the chance to meet him at Fort Fest uh, last year. Feels like a couple of years ago now, but last year. Uh, he's the author of the books The The Spectrum, Glimpses of the Paranormal and Encounters with the Strange. So, yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, his paranormal experiences, his research into uh, Men in Black, and uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun. So, yeah, that's Justin Bamforth on But All of America next Friday night, July 17th at 9 p.m. Sorry for all the uh, ums and ahs. <laughs> I'm really out of my element here. Very strange situation to uh, start up a cold, a cold call just to wrap up the program. But thankfully, my OCD can now uh, be put to rest here as we have completed the circle here on the Been All of America Summer of Strangeness, Episode 6, with 
Chris Cogswell. Big thanks again to him as well. And on that note, thank you again to everybody who listened, all the folks in the chat room. I'll be talking to you on Friday night with Justin Bamforth. Until then, this is Tim and all. 